incoming transmission. The Klingonese word of the day is Qua. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. Live long and prosper. and welcome to the computer resume podcast the show covering the entire star trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old i'm your host writer comedian mr todd a davis he is one third of cinema shock diving deep and forming strong opinions on every butthole in hollywood even the singing ones it's justin bishop yay justin hey Hey, I'm really buddy. glad. I'm really glad that I, my my name is so synonymous with famous buttholes. <laughs> <laughs> that, of course, so, is a nod to our John Waters series that we're working on on uh, on our other podcast right now. Which yeah. I don't know when when does this show come out? When does this episode come out? This one drops what? next Monday. Okay, so so this week from today. Okay, yeah, yeah. I knew I knew we that I had pushed it because I'm a very slow TV watcher, Uh, but um, but yeah, yeah. So that our John Water series is currently ongoing on uh, on Cinema Shock. Then, so that's what that's what you're referring to. I assume that's what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unless unless you have some sort of very strange fetish that you've hidden from us for years and years. I mean, (laughs) I. I'm certain that there are other celebrities buttholes that I have seen, uh, not in real life. Yeah. I mean, never say never, Justin. <laughs> you never know what might happen. <laughs> but uh no, you never know. Yeah, never know yeah you never twists know. And turns this life will bring. <laughs> so uh you mentioned oh well, first of all, uh gosh, it seems like for the better part of this year, between illnesses and traveling. My schedule has just been wonky and like, you know, trying to schedule um, recordings with people. I mean, you know, and you're just, you're just recording with your with your best friends and, uh, to talk yeah, about yeah. movies pretty regularly. But even that scheduling gets a little tricky oh, yeah. um, with all three of us, all, you know, having other other things going on like jobs and whatnot. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but just to, you know, um, to your credit. The the fact that we pushed the scheduling of this recording, I actually really appreciate it because you, having not seen Discovery, said, you know what, I'm going to go back and watch from the beginning. And you, correct me if I'm wrong, you covered everything from the Vulcan hello to today's episode, if memory serves, correct? Yeah, yeah. You, um, you asked me about doing this episode specifically. A couple of months ago, probably, I think, when you were working yeah. on your schedule. It was a couple of months ago. And I had tried and failed to watch uh, Discovery in the past. A couple of times, actually, in the past, I tried to to start it. And it wasn't that I wasn't didn't enjoy what I saw. Uh, it was more along the lines of, like, I'm, 
I'm kind of bad about what I'm bad at watching TV shows. Honestly, I watch a lot of movies, uh, obviously, of course, uh, as you know, right. I watch right. a lot of movies. I don't I don't actually watch a ton of TV compared to what most people would consider a ton of TV because I spend most of my watching time watching movies. So, like, I'm really, really bad at binging shows. I am perpetually behind on shows unless it's a show that, like, I'm watching as it comes out. Uh, you know, like something on HBO or whatever that's dropping episodes week to week. I actually prefer that rather than the binge model that Netflix and whatnot does. Right. Because otherwise I feel like I'm just behind everyone because it takes me three times as long to watch anything as it does anyone else. So I didn't yeah. watch Discovery when it first came out. So I had a lot of catching up to do because what are we in like four seasons in or something now? Uh, season five okay. is about to start uh next year i think okay uh, yeah so, early next so but year? Four, there are four completed seasons but, correct that's a lot yes. to catch up on yeah. uh for for <laughs> even even though they're you know somewhat short seasons what i think the first season was like 14 14 or 15 episodes something like that yeah uh, they've been season around. two is a little shorter i think like more like 12 or 13 i don't know yeah. i looked earlier but i forget but yeah so it takes me a while to watch shows so you, you asked me that and i was like I think I can catch up by then. And then I didn't <laughs> for the original date you asked me. I was like, I need more time. I just, yeah. I, it takes me forever. I, I very rarely watch more than like one episode in a row on shows. Although there was a stretch on when I was playing catch up on discovery that I did. Like I did binge like three episodes at a time, a couple of times and oh, wow. mostly in season one. Um, and I think that was just a matter of like, it would just work with my schedule and I was into it and I was, you know, I was folding laundry and stuff and doing things while I was watching it, but I was like still able to be fully engaged. And I don't know, I got hooked pretty quickly when I did that. So uh, it's the, the couple of things that when I first watched discovery, like when it first premiered and I didn't see it immediately, but I saw it, you know, pretty during season one, I watched the pilot and I was like, I wasn't a hundred percent sold on it, even though I'm a Trek fan, I'm not a Trek fan trekkie or a trekker i am a trek i'm a more casual trek fan i did grow up like a big big fan of next generation like in middle school or, and so when that was on i was a big fan i would have probably considered myself a trekkie back then because yeah. uh, i had Guy, the toys guys guys had... guys are guys our age it's very typical to be yeah you know big yeah. TNG fans yeah I remember in sixth grade going as uh, I didn't necessarily go as Captain Picard for Halloween, but I definitely had that. I had his jumpsuit on, you know, the nice. red, maroon, whatever color you want to call it. And but and it was the one piece. It was like season one, one piece uh, yeah. version of it, you know, <laughs> that my mom made from a McCall's, uh, you know, uh, sewing <laughs> kit thing. Of course. But, so I was definitely a Star Trek fan, but I've fallen off over the years and never got into like enterprise or anything i the only enterprise i've watched are really the episodes that i did for uh the show for, for the show yeah <laughs> and we thank you for that <laughs> uh but i had always heard great things about discovery so and uh i love brian fuller who is the showrunner on season one so i was like very intrigued by it and it just took me forever to get around to it but uh there were a few things in the pilot that i didn't love like i did not when i first saw it i did not love the look of the Klingons. I thought that they were way like way too extra, like mm -hmm. in the both their their costuming and their makeup that felt like they were just taking the design from uh like next gen and deep space nine and dialing it up to eleven and it felt a little too extreme. Like they were just trying to do too much. And for some reason that really turned me off. I was like, why are they doing this? Like why why if it ain't broke, you know, like Klingons look great as they are. Like why are we yeah. having to redesign them? Uh, but as the series went on, and once I started rewatching it, I did realize that 
what like especially the costuming was something you didn't see as often going forward i think they even realized it was maybe a little too baroque yeah for what they were trying to do <laughs> yeah um, but yeah so I, I got through season one i loved season one uh did not love the finale of season one i've talked to you about this off uh off mic but i do not yeah. i love everything about season one up until the finale i think that they just rushed the ending I was going to say, put, put your, put your thoughts out there because I get a lot of, I get a lot of folks who are just like, oh, I hate discovery. And then when I ask why I rarely get a solid answer. So if you wouldn't mind maybe bullet pointing your issues with the season finale, because it's, it's a very well thought out um, opinion. Well, it felt like to me that it was just like, it honestly, I, I knew granted I have the. I have the context of knowing that Brian Fuller was no longer the showrunner in season two. So, yeah. so to me, when I watched season, the season one finale, it felt a lot like there was a changing of the guard and we just want to wipe the slate as clean as we possibly can with the stuff that Brian Fuller put with all of the clean on war stuff and all this stuff that he was working on. We want to just wipe it clean as much as possible without doing a complete re reboot of the show and just start all over. So that season yeah. one finale felt a lot like they were doing that. So they're like, man, this we've been talking about this Klingon war all season. Let's wrap it up. Like a Kling, the Klingon war thing is something that could potentially go on for like multiple seasons. Like like it like like Deep Space Nine did towards the end, right? Oh yeah, uh, with, what yeah. Is it, whatever. I can't remember the name of that war, but the you know what I'm talking about. The Dominion War. Yeah, yeah. So you could have done that with the Klingon war because that's a big deal. And yeah. then they just were like, yeah, we just kind of like talked it out. <laughs> like that's, that's how, that's kind of how they ended. Laurel goes and just talks them out of like being at war yeah. with the Federation. And then they bring Michael Burnham in, in front of everyone. And they're just like, that's ah, cool. You know? Yeah. You started a war where like hundreds of thousands of people have died, but you know, water under the bridge, like it's not a big deal. <laughs> That, that just was like what what are you guys doing like this should be have long-standing repercussions going forward and instead we're just gonna be like that was season one we're just gonna forget about that and we'll reference it a little bit every now and then they reference it in the episode we're talking about today or at least they rep they they talk about her having committed you know treasonous acts and stuff in the past so yeah so to me it just felt like very i don't know it just felt like they were just trying to just wrap it up and start something new and they brought captain pike in which was cool um and i and i i don't mind the twist or whatever that jason isaacs ended up I mean, I mean this wasn't in the finale but towards the end that he was a bad guy i thought that was really cool you know yeah. and so i was fine with another captain coming in but it was just like the fact that they just kind of wrapped all the big arcs of the season up in one 45 minute episode it felt a little uh lazy honestly oh, yeah. it felt a little yeah. lazy to me so <laughs> Well, you know, to to sort of piggyback off of something you said, when we covered um, the season two premiere, uh, I think is when I initially talked about this, but I feel like that scene with Pike on the bridge and his service record is up on the is up on the view screen. And he mm -hmm. says, no, 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 let's let's take a look. And they go through it point by point. And he, you know, and I'll summarize here, but he basically tells the entire bridge crew, like, look, I know you've been through an ordeal. Let me reassure you, I'm not Lorca. And yeah. I feel like that speech, yes, it was Pike talking to the crew, but I also feel like it was like the writers and showrunners talking to the fans of like, hey, look, we understand it was like season one's dark. It's really dark. Yeah. 
And, so, and I feel like the fans at that time, I feel like there was a lot of complaints about like, well, where's the hope? Where's the bright future? Where's the, you know, and it was missing a lot of that. So I feel like they were like, you know what? We did kind of go down a dark path. Let's kind of get back on track here with, you know, with season two being more of a intergalactic mystery. I feel like that's yeah. more in tune with like the hopeful nature of Star Trek. I mean, but, I guess I see that that was going to be my question for you was whether it was a course correction uh, based off of fan uh, feedback or, you know, because uh, I know Star Trek fans like Star Wars fans can be very passionate because uh, yeah. that's the other thing that, that that end of season one thing felt to me a lot like what Star Wars did mm. after The Last Jedi when a bunch of neckbeard, you know, incel <laughs> I'm a big fan of The Last Jedi, so I I, I really d dislike people who are like, well, that's not Star Wars because of this and this and this. I'm like, y'all were mad because they dared to do something that you weren't expecting. And to me, as a person who enjoys stories, I like to be surprised. So I that, I love that it did something that I didn't expect. So then, you know, Disney comes in and they get J.J. Abrams to come back and then they do, what is it, The Rise of Skywalker. Mm -hmm. And uh, as kind of a course correction for what ryan johnson had done in the last jedi and it felt a lot like that like they were doing that same kind of course correction from season one to season two it's not as drastic maybe but it did feel like you know we're gonna oh we we heard you and personally this is me going off on a tangent but personally i think that listening to the fans that are that vocal mm. sometimes sometimes can be an adherent to the story that you're trying to tell yeah. Uh, like uh, I think if someone if someone's a a big fan like as a fan if if there's a franchise or something that I like I try to trust that the writers know where they're going with it. Now sometimes yeah. they betray that trust. There are shows and movies that go off the rails. Uh, if we want to bring J.J. Abrams' name back into it, we can probably think of an example here, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, and and yeah, there are franchises that have done that. But I feel like what start what Discovery was doing in season one was darker than what we expect from Star Trek. But if they had gone full on original series lightness, people would have complained about that too because yeah. they would have thought it was hokey, you know. So there's a matter yeah. of finding the balance, I think. And I haven't seen Strange New Worlds yet, from, but from what I understand, that one is a little bit more of a harkens a little bit more back to uh, to that original it's series. Well, let's let's pause for a second and let me ask you because uh, you already declared your love for TNG, um, and mm -hmm. uh, we discussed that a little bit. And it, I mean, if anybody's questioning whether or not Justin's into Discovery at this point, like just go ahead and hit rewind and listen to his very well thought out opinions about Discovery so far. Clearly, you're into it. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm loving it. Have you watched much uh, much more of what is called new Trek, the, the main five shows of, uh, you know, the streaming star Trek era. Have I haven't watched any, any of, of it. No, no? other okay. than a couple of, other than a couple of short tracks, I've seen a couple of short tracks, but I haven't seen all of them. Okay. Uh, but no, I haven't seen any strange new worlds. I haven't seen any lower decks. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, Picard. Uh, I haven't seen and, Picard, um, which I, I can't believe I haven't watched Picard yet. I just haven't, but I, I was going to say, <laughs> I will. Yeah, it's it it's gonna be there. Um, and Prodigy's the other one, which Prodigy they, they announced that it got canceled. Yeah, yeah, they're canceling it, and it's canceled, and they're getting it off of Paramount Plus, which seems really odd. 
it's weird. That's a, it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a tax, it's a tax thing. It's a tax break thing. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> so. Um, but you know, I think, I think with what you've experienced in discovery so far and knowing your background, I think you'll really dig Picard. Um, understand that season one, two, and three watch completely differently. You can almost watch, you can almost pick any season and start there. It, they watch very differently. Um, but I think you'll also appreciate sort of the zany nature of Lower Decks because it is very much, um, it is it is the Lego Batman movie of the Star Trek franchise <laughs> where it's just like, it's fun for anyone, but there's so many hidden Easter eggs that it, <laughs> you could easily watch the an episode three or four times and still find new stuff each time. Right, it's a lot okay. Um, Prodigies, Prodigy is very much geared for younger viewers, but it's also kind of geared towards like, hey, if you know nothing about Star Trek, you can start here. Right, and then right. and then Strange New Worlds, you know, with the end of Discovery season two, season two of Discovery really acts like the prequel to Strange New Worlds because it's dealing with Pike. Right, right. And, it's like a it's like one of the what, what do they call them on a, where TV shows do a backdoor pilot, which is usually a one episode thing. Uh, yeah. When they do a backdoor pilot where they, they introduce a character or something on one show with the intention of that becoming its own show. Now, I don't know that maybe, you know, it, it, when they brought Pike and Spock on to Discovery, were they already planning Strange New Worlds or did that come because of the popularity of their characters on Discovery? I think there was probably a little bit of both, but I think once people saw when I say people, once the executives and once the creatives saw the overwhelming positive response, not only to Anson Mount, but to Ethan Peck, and of course, Rebecca Remain is number one, mm -hmm. those three alone were just kind of like, uh, yeah, I think we kind of have to pull the trigger on this. And because they were able to sell it as, hey, look, we're going to return to it. You know, at that point, Strange New Worlds was, I, I think Strange New Worlds might have been the last thing to come out of that original new batch of new Trek. Mm -hmm. But at that point they had experimented with the, um, you know, long form serialization, you know, that is discovery and, and even Picard. But I think once they kind of had all their data gathered in one place, when they were setting out for strange new worlds, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to return to episodic, but we're going to keep the character arcs serialized. Which is a lot of fun because, you know, you know, yeah, yeah. us being us being big TNG guys, you can look at Worf as an example. You can look at Worf in one episode where he's like, uh, we must adhere to Starfleet uh, regulations and protocols and, you know, peace and diplomacy above all else. And then the next episode is just, so, so we can just kill them. Right. You know, that that yeah. sort of yeah. <laughs> flip flopping. Of personalities. A, a lot of it was weird with the way that those shows were created, even the original series. But Star Trek uh, TNG was created basically forced syndication almost you know like so they a lot of times and i i haven't looked at the data on on tng in particular but a lot of times on these shows they they'll film them in one order and then the the network will decide to release them in a different order you know oh, yeah. so you you can't have any kind of real 
solid through line as far as character motivation. You might have an episode reference something that happened in another episode, but then yeah. there's all these ups and downs. And obviously <laughs> that's not the case with something that's created for streaming where pe- they're, they're expecting people to watch it li- more linearly. Right. And a lot of people don't understand, like, uh, you know, hearing Garrett Wong, who plays uh, Harry Kim from Voyager, hearing him at Dragon Con talk about the production schedule for those folks. I mean, the actors, it mm-hmm. was it was 11 months out of the year because they were constantly doing something. Right. You know, now, yeah, they're shooting a, they're shooting a movie a week. But they shoot them and then that goes to post and then they've got the better part of a year off. Right. (laughs) You know, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, yeah, there's costume fittings and yeah, they got to stay in shape and the whole thing. But like other than that, like they go do other projects and, you know, and and also (laughs) yeah, yeah, he's doing Broadway or something. Yeah, he just finished his Broadway show. Yeah. (laughs) They also the seasons are also half as long as they were. That's the other part. They were 22, 24 episodes. So sometimes that's, that's a big part of it. Sometimes upwards of like 26. I mean, that's yeah. that's a lot of content. That's, that's a, a lot. lot. That's why content. you get filler episodes. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, hey, so and so and so's in charge of the bridge this week. Or right. <laughs> we've got, we've got the, oh, looks like we're gonna have to reverse the polarity again. Um, y- yeah, you could almost have one of those Dukes of Hazard like voiceovers was like, oh, looks like <laughs> looks like Picard and the gang got themselves in a real bucket of syrup. Wonder how they're gonna get out of this one. Um, but anyways uh so let's get into uh this episode a little bit if memory serves uh Mm -hmm. they make a big thing about this right off the bat because uh i mean this isn't a huge spoiler thing because this was revealed in the episode last week they're going to talus four and it's the first time since the pilot episode since pike in the pilot episode was there on talus four so we kind of get this retro uh, use of older footage in sort of a on the pre the, the previously, previously on, on. Yeah. yeah yeah it's it's really fun uh, the, it really surprised me when I saw that even using the old the old music and the old uh, logo yes uh, yeah and using using the footage from the cage uh, so when you say this is the first time they've gone back to Talos Four you mean on any Star Trek they've never done it or you mean like timeline wise I think. Um, well, certainly timeline wise, but I think because it's, it's discussed in the episode a little bit that because of the nature of that first interaction in the pilot episode of the original series, Starfleet put heavy regulations against, um, going to Talos four. Gotcha. Um, so I don't, I don't think any of the other crews, unless I'm forgetting something, but I'm pretty sure that was kind of like a. That's an off that's an off limits zone huh. in terms of uh, Starfleet. Yeah. It may have been mentioned in passing or something like that. Sure, yeah. But in in terms of like scenes or full on episodes taking place on the planet, no. No, this is the first time, which is pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah, that's really um, cool. Had you seen the pilot episode? When was the last time you saw the pilot episode of the original the, series? The last time I saw the cage is yeah, 10 years ago probably. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it several times, but it's been a long time. Yeah. Did this uh, did this bring back any sort of, you know, vibes? Did you get a, a certain vibe from like, you know, the blue, the singing blue leaf plants or the Talosians no, the, themselves or anything like the that? The Talosians themselves, um, I, I remembered uh, and I remember beats of the the 
story of the of the original pilot. I didn't remember little like the singing blue flowers and stuff like that, but those were very cool the way that they were portrayed here. Yeah. Uh, but no, I didn't. There were there were little things here and there that I remembered. Uh, but I almost wish that I had gone and watched the cage before watching this one. You know, just just to, yeah. not that you really need to. They give you enough in that previously on. Uh, yeah. They don't expect everyone to have done that, and they they give you enough throughout the episode to to where you you've got what the information you need for this episode. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, it, it was. I thought it was really cool because that was the this is the first time on Discovery that they have explicitly referenced something that happened in the original series or on any other Star Trek series. Really, I mean, obviously yeah. there are references to big events and, and, and things like that, but as far as referencing the actual events of a specific episode of Star Trek. This is the first time that Discovery's done that, which feels like a big deal to me. Yeah. I mean, obviously just having Pike there as a, as, as a reference to the original series uh, and, and Spock, but uh, but not nothing that like overtly referenced like, re hey, remember this? Right, <laughs> That's what, right. so I thought that was really cool, honestly. I thought it, it feels like a big episode because of that. And also because, you know, Spock is there for the, not the first time he was in the last episode, but he was kind of still catatonic for that whole episode. Right, right. So speaking of Spock, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, still very early in uh, Ethan Peck's work uh, on the franchise. Uh, you have what uh, some people have described to me as a glorious beard. I try to keep myself <laughs> uh, in, a, in a decent looking beard most of the time. How do you feel about bearded Spock? I like bearded Spock, and I was kind of upset when Michael was giving him a hard time about it because <laughs> she did. She gave him, she like she like was digging on him a little bit, like you, yeah. you really think the beard's working or something like that. And I'm like, <laughs> the beard is working. Like he looks good with a beard. Yeah, okay. it's got a nice it's, it's got, got a, a nice shape to it. it yeah, it's it almost looks... like a Keanu Reeves beard, but a little more full than Keanu's. Yeah, uh, and you know that guy that beard with his he's got a great bone structure for a beard. So you know it, it works yeah. well. I think you should keep it. I think Spock should keep the beard. I know yeah, he doesn't. Absolutely. No, you know, no, I, he doesn't. But <laughs> <laughs> it does look good. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, uh, Anson Mount the the love for Anson Mount has been uh, really very very present in the series. Had have you seen much of Rebecca Remain as number one just yet? No, she's, she's only popped she's, up once. Yeah, she's only popped and, up uh, once. But like, yeah, I, I think I think especially for guys who are into sci-fi uh, genre comic book movies, you know, we know her very well as Mystique. Um, also, guys who are just into very attractive women know who right. Rebecca Romain is. <laughs> it's no secret; <laughs> she's very attractive. Um, how how was it seeing her here as number one in the few times that she's popped up? Uh, I mean, I don't really have enough to judge her on. I mean, I like her as an actress and the things that I've seen. Uh, one one of my favorite things that she's in. Uh, I mean, obviously, everyone knows her from the, the X-Men movies, but one of the, my favorite roles of hers is actually a Brian De Palma movie called Femme Fatale that she is oh, yeah. fantastic in. Uh, she plays the lead in it, which she doesn't get a chance to play the lead in movies very often, but she is perfect in that role. Uh, so I, I like her as an actress anyway, uh, nice. especially because of that movie and because of, you know, the X-Men movies. But um, I haven't seen her enough here. I mean, she 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 popped onto the Discovery in an episode like three or four episodes ago, yeah, uh, and her her and Pike had a little little powwow, and then she and then went she away, gone. and yeah. she hasn't really done anything else. Uh, so I haven't really, I don't even think 
they've revealed her name yet. She's only been referred to as number one. She, they never said her name or anything. I know she has a name. I don't know what it is. Okay. <laughs> I know I've, I have, I have read it somewhere and it, it is it's not in my brain, but, but when I saw her, they haven't even given her a name yet. So she's been very minor so far. Gotcha. I think, um, yeah. Cause, uh, Femme Fatale, I think that's Antonio Banderas as well. Antonio Banderas. If, is I'm, in, yeah, if I'm remembering the, that yep. correct. Yeah. He plays the photographer. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, that's fun too. Uh I think if you if you dig Rebecca Remain, um buckle up for Strange New Worlds. She is fantastic yeah. in Strange New Worlds. Good. Um her, so. yeah. So getting more into uh the sort of meat and potatoes of this episode while still trying to stay spoiler free for a few more minutes. Um how do you feel about the Red Angel search for Spock mystery type thing that's going on here. Cause I mean, this is kind of, you know, we, we, we've seen that, uh, you know, the different wars and things that happen like that. And we've seen kind of a mystery of the week type thing, but this is mm -hmm. kind of the first like ongoing, what is happening? What, what is this thing? What are we doing? Where are we going? We're not sure what their intentions are. How, yeah. how is the, the plot, the overall plot of season two hitting you so far? I'm loving it so far. Cause I love a mystery anyway. Uh, and I, and I think that they have handled it very well where they've given you little bits here and there that are, are intriguing you for that, that next like crumb uh, of, uh, of the truth. You know, so oh, they're yeah. giving you a little bit here and there. And I think that's a good way to kind of string the audience along, keep you interested. Uh, and the Red Angel, once you saw what it looked like a couple of episodes ago, it might have been in the episode before this when you first saw a good look of it, uh, where it pops out outside of the window. Uh, I think that was in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, the, I th which, we, we got the, a good look at uh, we got a good look when it was there on Kaminar with with Saru. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then I think yeah, you're right. There was there was another... well, the last episode dealt with Saru as well, where uh, him and his sister, and then I think when he comes back onto the ship, you see it outside the window or something. Uh, yeah. But anyway, you you um, I think it's a first of all, a, visually is a very cool concept, uh, the Red Angel, uh, oh, yeah. and and the fact that like you don't know what it is for most of the season is or most of the season so far is is really intriguing because you don't know if this is like a, is this an alien is this someone in some kind of exosuit is it some sort of uh you know other dimensional being or is there something more supernatural going on because in star yeah. trek you never know it could be something that's explained by science or it could be something that's that's really not because they star trek does do that kind of stuff oh you know? yeah <laughs> yeah so, I've, I've really liked it and and i really like the way that they're kind of building Michael and, and Scott uh, Scott and Spock's relationship uh, just through like little bits of information here and there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, even, and I mean, Star Trek has never really shied away from uh, very important issues of the day. Um, and even when they went to, I think it was season two, episode two, new Eden, where they go to that, and they, there's this church and yeah, they've yeah. combined all the religions and they've got that one stained glass window mm -hmm. of the red angel. Yeah. It's like really cool. episode. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, is, is it an angel? Like we, right. <laughs> I mean, there's even that question, but yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun so far. I'm so glad that you're um, on board and that you're having fun with it. Um, I, I hope you continue. It's it. It oh, I will. Yeah, better from here, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not giving up on it. I'm going to keep going. So, by, by the next time you invite me on, I'll probably be ahead 
of the show. So <laughs> nice, hopefully, nice. hopefully, you know. Well, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the different characters and the different uh, plot elements so far with this episode. Uh, but before we get too much further, let's get to this week's recap. Brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, Rev J, Jerry Antimano, Cosmic Crit, Kitty B, and David Willett. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I have seen a possible future. One that could well be determined by our actions. This could be the defining moment for multiple civilizations, millions of lives. Show me my brother's mind. Now, you see... Starfleet orders Leland and Giorgio to apprehend Spock ASAP, and that in helping him escape, Burnham has committed mutiny again. When asked if they're tracking Burnham's shuttle, Leland replies that they were, but lost its signal. Giorgio adds that Burnham disabled the transponder and would likely hide the shuttle's warp trail. She concludes that due to Spock's need of medical attention, their list of destinations would be limited and suggests looking into any off-world Vulcan medical facilities. Giorgio suggests putting out a Federation-wide APB for Burnham's shuttle, with the exception of Discovery. When asked why, Giorgio points out that they don't want personal entanglements to complicate the search, and Burnham is likely to reach out to Pike for help. As they return to the bridge, Giorgio admits she's bothered by the reliance on computerized threat assessments and that in her universe, the AI answered to her rather than the other way around. Leland sarcastically asks how that worked out for her. Since she was on a roll, he adds, perhaps she could find a reason for Discovery to stand down. Giorgio contacts Pike and Tyler, telling them that Section 31 would find Spock and Burnham. In the meantime, Discovery is to comb the debris to find out what it's made of, and why it was trying to access the ship's computer. Pike's skeptical, asking if Giorgio was sure Burnham received the hails from her ship and deliberately ignored them. When Giorgio asks why she would lie, Tyler replies that Burnham always had a logical motivation for her actions. Giorgio emphasizes that no matter how Tyler may feel about Burnham, she's aiding and abetting an accused murderer. Pike points out that Spock's also Burnham's brother and that there were many approaches to the issue, and Discovery could be a more valuable asset in the search. Giorgio makes clear Discovery's job is to find more info on the probe, and to notify her immediately if Burnham contacts them. Pike demands to know Tyler's exact relationship with Burnham. He replies it's 100% professional, yeah, right. but admits that at one point he'd been in love with her, she was not entirely disinterested in him. He violated her trust, and she moved on. Pike's concerned Tyler's feelings could jeopardize the mission, to which Tyler states they won't. Meanwhile, aboard her shuttle, Burnham reviews the files about Talos IV, how it had a thriving population until it was devastated by nuclear war, and that the surviving indigenous population developed powerful psychokinetic abilities and that travel to Talos IV is prohibited by Starfleet. As they enter the system, 
Burnham's astonished to find they're approaching a black hole and attempts to reverse course to escape it. Spock rushes to the controls, taking the shuttle toward the singularity. As the computer counts down to structural integrity failure, the black hole disappears, showing the planet before them. The black hole was an illusion. And on that note, we cue the music. Pike asks Arium about the audit of the ship's data core. Arium reports that the probe used multiple SQL injections, but she was finding no compromised files. Whatever that means. Saru hands Pike the list of Vulcan hospitals he'd asked for. Pike orders him to start with Coelium Station and work from there. Tyler recognizes the hospital, meaning Pike's looking for Spock and Burnham, despite Giorgio's orders to collect debris from the probe. Pike replies they are, and directs him to Tilly, who's reviewing the footage of the space bus being attacked by the squid-like probe. They'd recovered one metric ton of material from the debris. All of it is from the space bus, none from the probe. <gasps> Pike understood Section 31 wanted them to stay put, but he's not going to ignore a crisis involving his officers. Meanwhile, on Talos 4, Burnham grabs a phaser and steps out onto the surface. She sees a woman approaching the shuttle. Burnham holds her at phaser point and asks if she's Talosian. The woman replies that she's human, but a permanent resident, identifying herself as Vina. When Burnham demands to know who she is, Vina explains she's an old friend of Pike's. Vina tells Burnham to transport herself and Spock below the surface so they could examine him. Burnham realizes this was why Spock brought them here and asks Vina for the coordinates. Beaming into the Telosian's refuge, Burnham's surprised to see Vina walking up to them and asks if she's real, to which the Keeper answers that she's very real as he materializes with two other Telosians. Burnham asks why Spock would risk their lives coming here. Scanning him telepathically, another Telosian says Spock's experiencing time fluidly rather than linearly, and that conventional logic's unable to help him interpret such an experience. Burnham realizes Spock knew the Telosians could help him. The Keeper confirms Spock knew conventional medicine wouldn't be able to help, and if the variance continued, he'd lose his mind permanently. When Burnham asks how this change of experience happened, the Keeper replies it'd be better to show her his thoughts, but asks for something in return. The full memories of what caused the rift between Spock and Burnham. Burnham, incensed, asks if they want the experience for their entertainment. The Keeper explains that this was how they understood, how they survived. Survive another way, Burnham bluntly replies. The third Telosian explains that there's no other way to save Spock's sanity. Vina advises Burnham not to resist. One of the Telosians removes the illusion of Vina's youth and beauty, showing her to be scarred and deformed. She explains the Telosians gave her the choice, live as she was or as she had been. To save Spock's mind, the Telosians would have to disengage him from logic. 
but Burnham must be the one who pays the price. I guess. Burnham reluctantly concedes, but demands to see Spock's mind first. Within his memories, Spock explains to Burnham he'd begun the night she'd run away. That was when the angel first appeared to him. He thought it was a dream or a premonition because the angel had shown him Burnham's death. Spock went to Sarek and Amanda and explained where he'd seen her, allowing Sarek to rescue her. Years later, the angel appeared to him again, guiding him to a remote ice world showing him the end. Spock performed a mind meld with the angel, showing him the bursts and powerful projectiles causing devastation to numerous planets. As the memory fades, Burnham collapses next to Spock. In his ready room, Pike pours drinks for himself and Tyler, while reminding the Section 31 liaison that it was his ship, and more importantly, his crew, and that he would not call off the search and leave two of them out there, particularly when one is accused of a crime Pike's not convinced he committed. Tyler, speaking from experience, replies when one's not right in their mind, they're capable of anything. Pike agrees that may be so with Tyler, but not with Spock. Tyler warns Pike that Section 31 has their eyes on Discovery, advising him to trust Burnham's instincts. Later in the corridors, Pike is approached by Saru, who tells him that someone on board sent out three very large, encrypted, and unauthorized subspace transmissions. Not just anyone could access the transceiver array. On Talos 4, Burnham asks Spock about the angel. He replies that if he knew, they wouldn't be there. He wonders if she has a valuable question, to which she sarcastically asks about his beard. Burnham then becomes serious, thinking on the devastated planets they'd seen, including Andoria and Earth, wondering if the angel was a time traveler. Spock believes the engineering comprehension needed to build its suit made it likely, as well as the fact that some of the events the angel had shown him had not yet happened. When Burnham begins to say there was so much she wanted to talk to him about, Spock coldly rebuffs her, telling her he was not there to absolve her and that it was not about her feelings. Burnham is indignant, saying she had risked everything to bring him there. Spock's not surprised that she feels that way, but states it was he who brought her there to see what he had seen. When Burnham asks how her seeing helped him, he replies he required someone with context of his timeline and of him personally. In other words, Burnham says he needed family. An interesting choice of words coming from you, Spock replies. He explains that the angel had a quantum field around it he was unable to infiltrate, but the thoughts he received from it in the mind meld were in fact human, much to Burnham's surprise. Spock adds that there was loneliness and desperation and that she would need to see more. Vina explains that their hosts would safeguard her mind, offering to let her rest before they continued. Burnham waves that off, telling them to show her more. Spock's memories turn now to the psychiatric unit on Starbase 5, as he furiously scribbles equations, maps, and other data on the floor of his cell. A psychiatrist enters his cell, accompanied by two security officers. The psychiatrist explains to Spock that there have been signals detected across the galaxy, just like the ones he'd described. 
Spock is taken aback to realize that it wasn't a hallucination at all, but a premonition. When asked what he thinks the signals are, he believes they are an attempt to communicate. The psychiatrist believes that perhaps it's something that has happened before, since Spock was a Starfleet science officer with access to the historical record. Spock replies that history would not provide her an answer. He now sees it was a mistake to commit himself and decides to leave. The psychiatrist says it would be premature as Section 31 officers were waiting to take him to a specialized facility because his mind was in crisis and that the Vulcan part of him needed time to heal. Spock replies that she was correct. Time had something to do with it. He then knocks out the psychiatrist and both the security guards. Burnham, silent up to now, asks what happened after that, as Section 31 believes Spock killed these people. Spock replies that her faith in his character has not changed since they were children. She was inside his mind, and yet still wanted confirmation. He asks her if she saw murder here before leaving his cell. Meanwhile, In the turbo lift, Pike questions why Saru allowed the fight between Culber and Tyler to proceed. Saru explains he felt the confrontation was a necessary and unavoidable catharsis for both Culber and Tyler. When Pike points out it was not necessarily by the book conflict resolution, Saru replies that Starfleet has no guidelines for dealing with humans with Klingons grafted to their bones and a ship's doctor returned from the dead, which requires them to make things up as they go. Pike comments that perhaps before his own evolutionary change, Saru might have made a different call. Saru concedes that's likely. Entering his ready room, Pike is shocked to see Vina there. When he'd come to Talos, she explains, she'd been alone for a long time. But when he left, she felt a lot worse because she knew what she'd lost. Pike admits he'd thought about her a lot since then and wished she could have come with him. Vina explains the Talosians' ability to project across space was limited and more difficult the further away they were. She then tells him there was something he needed to see. Pike turns and is surprised to see Burnham with three Talosians behind her. Burnham explains she found Spock and he directed her to bring him to the Talosians and she'd learned the truth. She was communicating via the Talosians' telepathy because subspace was likely to be traced. Pike relays what Giorgio told him about the escape. Burnham explains she'd gone to Leland, who'd planned to use Terran technology to rip Spock's mind apart. When Pike asks what Section 31 wants Spock for, Spock himself steps forward to respond that they wanted his memories of the future. He tells Pike he'd seen the end of their current timeline. To avoid it, they must follow the angel's design. He admits that he never thought he'd ask this of anyone, but nonetheless asks Pike to take him on faith and tells him he must come for them immediately if he can. The Talosians are unable to keep the projection up longer as the image of Spock, Burnham, and the Talosians fades. Vina tells Pike to hurry for his friends as they were counting on him before her projection also fades. Pike orders Black Alert intending to make a spore drive jump to Talos, despite it being in restricted space. Just as Arium initiates the spore jump, however, the drive disengages due to a failure in the spore hub. Tilly reports corruption 
in the duotronics, corruption that appears to have been introduced manually. When Pike asks if this has happened before, Tilly replies it was nothing like this. They ran level three diagnostics of the spore drive every 10 hours, so someone must have deliberately interfered with the system. At that moment, Tyler enters, wondering about the black alert. Pike explains the intention of going to Talos to retrieve Spock and Burnham, but someone appears to not want them to make that trip. When Tyler asks who, Nan replies pointedly that it was someone who wanted them to stay put. Saru also mentions the unauthorized transmissions. Tyler denies it was him, even though the transmissions were sent using his command codes. Pike mentions that he's learned Section 31 has begun using invasive neural techniques and may have used it on Tyler without his knowledge. Tyler is unconvinced, certain he would know. Pike tells him he can't afford to take that risk, and neither can Tyler himself, before ordering Nan to confine him to quarters. As he's escorted off the bridge, Tyler warns him that Section 31 will track him regardless. Pike orders Detmer to set a course for Starbase 11, maximum warp, and to radio ahead that they needed repairs. Saru points out that Starbase 11 is only two light years away from Talos 4. Pike confirms that was the point, to make Section 31 believe they're going there. Midway there, they'll alter course and run silent to throw off any pursuers. As Arium returns to her station, the three lights that she had seen during the probe's attempted computer breach flash in her eyes. Meanwhile, Burnham thanks Vina for her help in saving Spock. Vina tells her that Discovery would be there soon, and there wasn't much time. However, Burnham still owes the Telosians her memory. Vina warns her about letting the Telosians force payment. Spock says he has already shown Burnham all she needs to see. Burnham replies that now he has to share in one of her memories, the price she agreed to for his recovery. The Telosians awaken their memories. A young Spock tries to stop Burnham from running away. But Burnham believes she's a danger to the family, as the logic extremists don't like humans living on Vulcan. While Burnham tries to distance herself, referring to Spock's parents as his family, Spock insists on calling them our family. Burnham, now appearing in the memory as her adult self, tells the younger Spock he needed to grow up somewhere safe. Spock retorts that safe was a relative construct and had different meanings. When Burnham insists she's going, Spock tells her he's going with her. Choking up as she relives the memory, Burnham tells Spock she doesn't want him with her. Spock calls her his sister before he too appears as his adult self, explaining that she was helping him learn to express his human half. Burnham retorts that the human part of him was so small it would not make a difference. As they shift between their child and adult selves, Burnham tells Spock she doesn't want a freak like him as a brother. When Spock tells her he loves her, Burnham dismisses him as being incapable of love because he is Vulcan. Spock insists that Burnham promised him she would teach him about Earth and that they'd live there one day. Burnham replies that she did not want him in her life, ending with, Stop following me, you weird little half-breed. Spock in both his child and adult forms, is left tearful by her statement. The memory fades. Burnham tries to explain she didn't mean any of it, 
Spock understood she was trying to sever their emotional attachments so he'd be less distraught by her absence, which he calls a primitive tactic, but logical. Burnham insists it was more than that. The logic extremists would have targeted her if she lived in Sarek's house, and that she didn't want Spock hurt, but admits she should have tried something, anything, other than what she did. Surprisingly, Spock expresses gratitude, as her words showed him how damaging his humanity could be. She rejects that idea, saying his humanity was beautiful. Spock calls her a catalyst, to escape emotion, to escape Burnham. He submerged himself in logic, but his constant has always been time itself, and now time, logic, and emotion have all failed him. As Burnham looks shaken by this statement, Vina approaches to tell them that Discovery was approaching, with another ship close behind them. Meanwhile, as Discovery approaches Talos, with Leland's ship close behind them, Bryce reports that the Section 31 ship is hailing. Pike knows that with Tyler confined to quarters, he wouldn't be the one telling Section 31 where they were. Pike answers the hail. Leland says he knows where he's going and orders him to stand down. Pike replies he'll obey that order when Leland starts telling him the truth, wondering if he wouldn't find out what he planned to do to Spock. Last warning, Chris, Leland replies, again ordering him to stand down before cutting the channel. Pike orders Detmer to take them out of warp over Talos. Once in orbit, he instructs Awosakun to scan for their people. She quickly finds them and locks on with the transporters. However, Tilly reports that the Section 31 ship has also locked on. Leland hails again, telling him to disengage his transporter beam or Spock and Burnham would be torn apart. Pike tells Awosakun to mute the screen and stands in silence while the crew awaits his orders. Vina appears behind him, telling him to let them go. Not just Spock and Burnham, but Vina and the Telogians as well, and that it was the only way. Pike orders Awosakun to disengage the transporter. As Burnham and Spock beam aboard his ship, Leland tells Pike to report to Starbase 11 for disciplinary action before cutting the channel. His ship then warps away. In orbit over Talos, Saru detects a shuttle rising from the surface. Awosakun tries to scan it, but the scanners are being blocked. Bryce asks if he should hail. Pike, realizing what was happening, tells him not to, as they wouldn't want to risk their transmission being detected, ordering the shuttle brought aboard and telling Saru to accompany him to the shuttle bay. Meanwhile, Leland asks Burnham why she was on Talos. She doesn't answer, simply smiling at him. Leland tells her it'd be easier if she answered him, or it could go harder. I beg to differ, Burnham replies. Say goodbye, Spock. Spock looks at Leland, raises his hand in the Vulcan salute. Goodbye, Spock, he says, as both he and Burnham vanish into thin air. Uh? Giorgio explains that the Telosians of her universe had tried their tricks on her once, and she wiped them out in response. Leland tells her she could have warned him about the scope of their abilities, to which Giorgio smugly replies that she wanted to see how he'd explain this to the admirals. Meanwhile, in Discovery's shuttle bay, the real Burnham and Spock step off the space bus. Pike asks Spock and Burnham to explain about the angel, to which they say it's human and seeks to change the current timeline, a timeline in which all life in the galaxy will be eradicated. Because of Section 31's failure to secure Spock and Burnham, however, Discovery is about to become the most wanted ship in the galaxy. 
Pike half-jokingly asks Spock if the angel told him anything to deal with that. Spock replies that it didn't, but suggests, based on his limited experience as a fugitive, that there was only one course of action available to them. Run. Pike begins telling the crew that he couldn't ask them to participate in an act of disobedience. But before he gets very far, Detmer asks him for a course heading. Well, So, yeah, like this, this episode kind of brings back uh, a lot of things, uh, obviously aesthetically, and we've already mentioned it a little bit here, um, aesthetically from the pilot episode of the original series, The Cage. I'll just call it The Cage from now on. You know, anyway, uh, a lot of things from The Cage, but we we get a better look at the Telosians and kind of how that relationship with the Telosians and Vina has progressed and how that they've set up this planet to be very, hey, stay off my lawn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Don't don't come here. But (laughs) I mean, the the things that are going on for them to reach out, for the Telosians to reach out through Vina across space to make contact the the situation must be pretty dire. Like, how did you feel about this new look at the Telosians and what they're doing in terms of, I mean, the big, I mean, it's, you know, in sci-fi, there's a big thing of like the, the sacred space of the mind, you know, Philip K. Dick was all about, um, you know, th- the mind playing tricks on you, the government playing tricks on you. And here we've got this race where their, their day in day out is, illusions and i mean crystal clear it looks totally real um do you have any thoughts about creating these the i'm trying to piece my words together here uh, a thought about the uh ethics of piecing something together that looks real in an effort to bring about something positive when it's potentially hurting people or just you're invading someone's mind. The thought that comes to my mind is like the use of AI. We're yeah. using AI and it's potentially hurting writers, actors, productions. Like what are your thoughts about this when it's juxtaposed with the Telosians? Well, I mean, the, you know, what's her name? Vina. Yeah. To, to her, the, the illusion that they're creating is helpful, you know, like, like to her because she, and she's very happy with it. So she's fine with, with it, but she's also volunteering to allow them to do that. I mean, that's her choice, you know, whereas them, them uh, reaching out to like Spock and, 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 and to get Michael to bring Spock here feel does. Yeah. I get what you're saying. It feels a little intrusive, I guess you'd say. Uh, It's also, it's also a little weird to me that like, well, first of all, I think that from a plot standpoint, I don't, I don't think that you really, they they really needed to go to like Talos in order to, do all this it, it felt yeah. like that was a way of them connecting it to the other series they, they do kind of justify it but uh it feels almost like a weird choice but the way they pulled it off works very well um mm. i do think it's really weird that they're just trusting the telosians after yeah. everything that after everything they did in uh the the, the cage because these are not good these are not the good guys right no no they're uh, not the telosians, <laughs> the telosians are the bad guys and it's hard to you can't if you had not seen the cage, you would have a hard time understanding that they are the bad guys in this yeah. episode because yeah. they're they're presented as almost saviors. I mean, they're morally gray, but they're presented as like these we're the ones that are going to help you fix Spock. 
yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But then if you've seen the cage, you're like, no, these these you should not trust these guys. And, and yet Pike and Spock do, despite the fact that they're the one, the two people who have actually interacted with these guys in the past. So yeah. it, it's, a, it's a little <laughs> weird, but it's like maybe you maybe we shouldn't like just do exactly what what these folks say <laughs> yeah well i mean even there at the end of their interaction they the telosians essentially hold them hostage until, yeah, until... burnham lets them into her memories right like, yeah yeah uh, yeah if you if you were kind of on the fence about the telosians like once that comes down it's just like hey section 31's almost here you're gonna let us in or what like <laughs> yeah uh okay i guess (laughs) yeah it is it is so obviously they're not painted completely as like the good guys but you know they are the ones that are set up to quote unquote save spock yeah yeah and it makes me think of because i think we talked a little bit about this uh off mic uh the other day uh you know talking about section 31 and you you'd express i mean we'll we'll get to your because i definitely want you to voice your opinions on ash tyler but in full in a minute um (laughs) (laughs) but us but us talking about section 31 um you know i've kind of viewed them as sort of the cia black ops you want me on that wall you need me on that wall you can't handle the truth type thing um but you know i feel like this is kind of there i think there's a comparison to be made here between the telosians and section 31 of like hey we're gonna do what's in the best interest for everybody but uh, with a little extra to to us as well like we're gonna come out on top of this (laughs) sure (laughs) yeah they're yeah, it's not completely self uh, selfless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you you um when we were talking about it the other day, I think you described Section Thirty One as like CIA black ops, which yeah. is essentially. I mean, that's definitely what they're modeling them after. Yeah. And hey, yeah. uh, the CIA in real life are not all good guys. Like the CIA has done some messed up stuff, like sure. absolutely messed up stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, over over the the decades. Uh, but I mean, I like, I, I like that comparison though. You're right. I mean, they, it is both like, it's that question of like the great, what, what serves the greater good kind of thing. Like, do, are yeah. you willing to work with someone to serve the needs of the many kind of thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's interesting. Cause I mean, Star Trek's always kind of toyed with that idea. Like what, what, how should we intervene or should we intervene or, or at what point is our intervention harmful you know yeah uh that what was that the general directive is that what it is where you're not allowed to like uh uh yeah well yeah that that was uh the prime directive where you're not the allowed prime to directive you not allowed to um i'm obviously paraphrasing here but you're not allowed to interfere interfere with a civilization's natural development development yes. right and there but over over the many star trek series there's always been like episodes where they're like well if we don't if we don't go in there and help, then these guys, they're going to be extinct or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's been a moral <laughs> dilemma for, for, for Starfleet for a long you know, time. For, for, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and well, that, that, that's one well, of those questions that comes up a lot throughout all of Star Trek. I feel like. Oh yeah. All the way back to Archer. And I feel like a lot of, I, I feel like it's kind of, I think <laughs> I think it's they probably gave it a subtitle of like the archer clause of like yeah. <laughs> hey, hey don't let your dog pee on the tree okay can right. you <laughs> stay on the ship 
observe, use your sensors. It's going to be fine. Stay out of their way. Uh, but, you know, talking about intervening, they even did it on Kaminar, where ca the, the Kaminar people, the the Kaminarians, the people of Kaminar. The, the Kelpians? Uh, Kelpians, thank you. God. <laughs> I'm going to lose my Star Trek card. Jeez. <laughs> thank God for editing. Anyway, um, <laughs> the Kelpians, uh, you know, th there was a question of, well, do we just show up? These people are still living in huts. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but the Baal, their enemy has technology. So the the Kelpians know about it. So they, that's yeah. our that's our little that's our little window where we can get in there and be like, hey, yeah. we're here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's I mean, that's been an issue ever since the jump, you know, with uh with that sort of thing. So uh let's let's take a look at another uh aspect of this episode. Uh we get some fun interaction with um Giorgio played by yeah. Michelle Yeoh uh who uh, and I'm sure you'll probably appreciate this as a as a movie fan. They have announced she's going to be taking center stage in the Section 31 movie. Uh which is coming So is this a movie? It's a movie, not a TV series. It is going to be a movie. I think it's going to be like direct to Paramount Plus. I think it's going sure, to be a, a streaming a streaming movie, but it is going to be a movie. Um, okay. uh, of course, it's you know like everything else, been delayed by the strike. Of course, yeah. But uh, how do you feel about like Michelle Yeoh on the show and helming a Star Trek movie? I love it, honestly, because I love Michelle Yeoh. Anyway, yeah. I've loved Michelle yeah. Yeoh for twenty <laughs> years. Ever. I think the first thing I ever saw her in. First thing I ever saw her was definitely James Bond, but the first thing, first thing that I like took real notice of her in was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was 2001, oh, yeah. I believe. So 20, yeah. 22 years ago. Oh, uh, and now I I go back and I watch I uh, I watched Yes Madam actually recently, which is her very first starring role in a movie. It's this uh, Hong Kong Ooh. action movie with her nice. and Cynthia Rothrock. It's super fun, really fun. Nice, uh, awesome. but yeah, it's. Uh, it's called Yes, Madam, and it's part of a it's part of a franchise. Actually, um, the other movies are not called like Yes, Madam two and three or whatever. They a lot of times the naming conventions in Hong Kong movies uh, are a little weird. But mm. she uh, there's like five movies in the franchise, and I think she, I, I think she there's one or two that don't have her in it. But and then her character shows up in another franchise called like In the Line of Duty. I think is what it's called. Okay. Um, that sounds but familiar. She's, it's like her same character, but you know, she uh it's like a spin-off. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but yes, I am a big fan of Michelle Yeoh because I I love all of her Hong Kong stuff and I love that she's getting kind of a late career resurgence it seems like, largely yeah. because of probably cuz she's in her early 60s now, I want to say. Mm -hmm. Uh so, but but because of Star Trek and especially because of everything everywhere all at once, which obviously was huge. For right. her, uh, I, I love that she's getting a lot of big recognition. Not that she ever went anywhere, but a lot more people are being exposed to her. I feel like than have been in recent years. Yeah, if anybody, I I don't think they would. But if there is a question of like the longevity or legitimacy to uh, Michelle Yeoh's career, do yourself a favor. Go to IMDb, pull up Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and just look at the awards and nominations. Like the numbers oh, yeah. are through the roof of like, oh, everybody in the world, <laughs> like, here's our award. <laughs> Here yeah, go. I mean, that. well, well, that movie was like a big, I mean, it was Ang Lee, who is um, 
Chinese, but he's also he had also already been working in America, and he went back yeah. to make uh, that movie, and he made it in I think it's in Cantonese, I believe is the language that it's in. Mm. But it, it for a lot of people that was a lot of Americans' first exposure to like a wuxia movie. Yeah, uh, and, and a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people had probably not seen a subtitled movie in theaters before that movie came out in 2001. Cause there weren't a lot of them in the, like the nineties uh, yeah. subtitled movies being released like in multiplexes, you know, not in art house cinemas. Right. Uh, so for a lot of like mainstream moviegoers, that was their first exposure to that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And you know, but, she, she's just been, and I, she's been killing it all along, but when yeah. she hit, when she hit here as prime universe, Giorgio, you really saw, you know, the cap, the captain's uniform just kind of, it just fits so well of just like, mm-hmm. oh, of course she's a captain. Why wouldn't she be? Yeah. And then, yeah. then when we got Empress Giorgio uh, and, you know, Mirror Universe Giorgio, it was just like, oh, she's even better in this? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> she's, she's great with a little bit of like piss and vinegar. Uh, like she is. She she is relishing playing a villain because I don't know that yeah. she's played very many villains over her career. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I certainly can't think of many that she's played. Uh, I mean, maybe she has. There's a lot of stuff she's been in that I haven't seen. But uh, but I definitely don't think of her normally as as a villain. But mm. she's very good at being a villain, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, I think there's uh, there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you. I mean, we've talked a lot about the mystery aspect and sort of, uh, you know, the uh, revisiting old locations and uh, old aesthetics, you know, with the stuff uh, from the cage. Uh, but there was another one other big aspect that I wanted to ask you about this episode. And, you know, it's been it's been something that's been going on through the series since Vulcan Hello or. Well, I think the second episode is when we actually land on Discovery. But it's the relationship between Stamets and Colbert. You got uh, Wilson Cruz, Anthony Rapp, who are just huge giants in terms of uh, their acting skill and the performances that they put here. Uh, How do you feel about this romance um, between the two of them in terms of just like this is kind of like the first healthy marriage that we've seen in the franchise. Like, how do you feel about the, the Stamets Culber relationship? Oh, I love it. I love both of them. I was really yeah. bummed when Culber was, was killed. Uh, you know, well, I guess that was, was that in season two or was that back at the end of season one? I can't, no, I, I think two. that was season one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. but anyway, yeah. When, when he was, uh, killed. I was really bummed because I'm like, man, I, we've barely gotten to know this guy, and I really like him, and I really like their relationship because I also like that it is an LGBT relationship that is not portrayed like that's a big deal. Yeah, you know, like it's just it's never announced on the show or anything. It's just like it's just a thing because you know what? That's what it's like. Like <laughs> that's just like like yeah. You, like every every uh every gay couple that I know doesn't walk into a room and announce themselves. Hey, the gays are here. I mean, some of them do, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like they just present yeah. it like it could it could very much be a, a heterosexual relationship, and they would present it very naturally, and people wouldn't question it. And I like that they're doing that here. It also helps that. These two actors, Wilson Cruz, who I was honestly not familiar with. I've looked up his IMDb and stuff, and he's definitely been in stuff that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I couldn't say that I was very familiar with him. Anthony Rapp I was familiar with because of um, 
well rent and i mean going back to days and confused you know like i've seen him in a bunch of stuff but uh yeah i love it i i, lo- I think it's great uh I, obviously they've gotten to a point by this episode where things are very complicated uh yeah. because wilson or because uh colbert was you know killed and then somehow was trapped in the mycelial network and somehow came back to life in a way that i honestly do not truly fully understand <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was some fancy writing for sure yeah they, they, yeah, it was, they it's found one of those a star trek <laughs> yeah it's one of those star trek things where they're like let's just we'll we'll say it in a way where it sounds like we know what we're talking about and then people yeah. will just go with it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i, I wonder because i think when we discussed his death or was it when we discussed his death or when he came back um either we we discussed the idea of uh the the refrigerator of you know the body in the refrigerator which uh Mm -hmm. the term of course coming from the green lantern comics where uh kyle rayner who was green lantern at the time comes home finds his girlfriend dead in the refrigerator and a lot of people got upset about you know them uh killing off a female character just to serve uh you know just to serve the the heroes like for tragedy porn Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I wondered, and I didn't come across this in any of my research or anything like that, but I wonder if that was also part of, you know, them listening to the fans about, Hey, we've seen enough tragedy on the show. Yeah. It's rare to see a healthy relationship. Is there any way we can get this back? I, I wonder if yeah. that was a discussion you know, or, or, you know, what was it an internal discussion? Were they listening to the fans? Uh, it, was it just amongst the writers or, you know, yeah. was this the plan all along? I don't know, but um, yeah, you have to wonder if it was, um, if it was planned for him to come back all along, or if that's something, uh, an idea that came along later, regardless, I'm glad they did it. Uh, yeah. I, 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 like I said, it feels a little like convenient the way that they did it, but I'm glad to have him back. I hope that he somehow gets past his trauma and, and gets a little more normal because he's kind of he's going through it right now. You know, I did like yeah. seeing him and Ash Tyler fight, though. I liked him trying to get a piece of Tyler uh, because, I mean, I'd be mad if you murdered like, me. I'm going to be mad at you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of and, and to be honest, uh, you know, first of all, uh, I, I imagine you don't mind seeing Ash Tyler get get his uh, get his butt handed to him. No, I I have. Uh, <laughs> I have been, I've made no secret to you, and I've talked to Gary about it too about my uh, dislike for Ash Tyler. Um, I just don't like that character at all. I, I uh, ever since I mean when when he was first introduced, you know, in season one, whatever yeah. he was just like a I didn't know he was going to become a major character, and then uh, they've just been trying to shove him down my throat ever since. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you're not the first person to be the kind of you know. Um, not a fan of him or lukewarm on him, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, he makes some decisions here. You're not going to have to deal with him for much longer. <laughs> I'll say. That. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I think that I, I, it almost feels like they've tried to write him off a couple of times. Like I thought he was disappearing with section 31. And then of course he comes back as the liaison. And uh, I don't, I just don't, there's something about that character that has felt forced from the beginning to me. Uh, mm. I think his and Michael's relationship felt very forced and came across very quickly. And we didn't yeah. see enough of it for me to ever really be invested in it before that relationship ended. And they keep, you know, they've had these interactions between Michael and, and him that feel like they're wanting me to 
feel like they're 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 the writers are assuming that I have strong feelings about their relationship yeah. and like that I should be sad that they're no longer together, but I barely saw them together. Like there there's a scene of like Michael and Tilly talking about the hot new guy that's sitting over there. Uh, and you know, in the yeah. cafeteria, the scene of season yeah. one, and then uh, then all of a sudden they're like in a relationship, and then all of a sudden they're not like it, it. And but they always talk about how you know we were in love and all this. And I'm like, well, y'all didn't show us that. I never saw yeah. any evidence of that, so I don't care about this guy. And then they started. You know, then they had the whole him and Laurel thing, which I also didn't like. I also felt like it was just really weird and forced and and cringy uh, because there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, tr- <laughs> trigger triggering material that I'll say. Uh, you know, involved yeah. when involved in Tyler as a prisoner of war, but also you know the things he endured as in in his transition from Tyler to Valk or from Valk to Tyler. Um, mm. it, it's it's it, it, again like the Klingon War. It felt rushed and yeah yeah well and the rushed, whole we didn't really thing, get a lot out of it the whole explanation of him and vokes uh consciousness kind of being merged or what however you want to say it feels like another one of those things like the culver thing where it's just like we're just going to kind of explain this and assume that you're just along for the ride because yeah uh it's a concept that like well this has never been in star trek before like what is this concept of merging consciousness uh, and that's a concept that is kind of cool, but I feel like they just sort of like threw it on the audience without any real explanation. Not that we have to get it in the nuts and bolts of it, but we need a little more of a, you know, an idea of, of what, what exactly is going on here. Yeah. I wondered if that was kind of their way of, you know, Star Trek always endeavoring to find sci-fi ways to discuss certain issues or certain peoples i wondered if the whole tyler valk uh element was a way for them to sort of get into directly dealing with trans issues well, in, the, in that he was and then he's something else i i, I don't I, that's a guess i don't know and i wonder it was like oh what did how well how well did we accomplish that as opposed right. to a, a little bit of a spoiler down the road, they bring someone on who prefers to be referred to as they, them like, it's, right. Oh, it, it would have just been easier to just bring somebody on the ship. Who's trans. Like <laughs> we could yeah. just do that. Well, well <laughs> yeah. The, th- the thing is that uh, it, you're right. That, that, that relationship in season one was definitely like a metaphor. There was definitely, there were definitely metaphors there for like sexual assault. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. With, with Laurel and Tyler. And also, you know, once Tyler knows, that he is also Vogue. Yeah, you could you could see that as a metaphor for like like body dysmorphia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you I mean honestly you could do that with if you wanted to talk about body dysmorphia, you could do that with Colbert who who has a new body. Now and he's and he's trying to come to terms with feeling alienated in his own body. Yeah. Be, you know, yeah. cuz that's that's what he's going through right now, you know, cuz he does have a new body because you know they they made the point I think the last episode where he's missing his scar on his shoulder. Uh, yeah. That Stamets tells that story. So he's in a he's in a whole new body, and he obviously is being tra- traumatized by feeling like he's not himself within that body. So yeah. you know, so they they are doing that as well. So I mean, 
they definitely are doing at least some of this consciously, you know, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I do think that that relationship in season one, they, I think they didn't, if, if that is what they were going for, they didn't quite pull it off as deftly as maybe they could. And maybe that's just me being biased because I don't care for the character, you know? Uh, but I also, I don't care for the character of Laurel. I just don't, that whole relationship to me in all of season one was just like kind of weird. And I didn't, I just never, really cared about it so like when they flew away and they were gone i was like yeah that's fine i'm good with that (laughs) my favorite uh, episodes so far have been the saru uh centric episodes uh he's my favorite he's barely in the episode that we're talking about today but yeah right but he is he is (laughs) wonderful i love he's one of my favorite star trek characters period at at this point and he's he's gone through a real and i've mentioned this before on a couple of episodes that you know, the, the show is very uh, appropriately named, not only because it's the name of the ship and yada, 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 but it's all of these characters are on a journey of discovery, whether it's mm-hmm. a journey of rediscovery in terms of Burnham, you know, rediscovering her humanity, rediscovering her heart, as it were. Um, uh, Saru played wonderfully by doug jones we've we've not we've not held back our love for doug jones on the show in fact in fact at this at this time it's it's customary for me to go uh mr jones if you by chance hear this please please reach out we'd love to talk to you and i'll tell you what for any length of time yeah doug jones i've met doug jones i I think i've mentioned that to you before but i've met doug jones and he is one of the most genuine sweet people that i've ever met yeah, uh, I mean, he was he is an absolute sweetheart. He is he loves his fans. He is very uh, soft spoken and very kind and just and, and very clearly loves what he does. You yeah. know, and and, he, and and not to mention that that'd be one thing if he were just a nice guy. But he is an incredible actor, uh, yeah. like one one of the best uh, physical actors you know, as far as like using his body to act. There, There's this thing that I noticed. I actually I just noticed it in the episode where they go to his home planet where mm. he does this thing when he walks, where he sways his hands behind him. And I, yeah. I didn't notice that until he was wearing that flowy robe that he wears yeah. in that one. And now I, that's all I see. And I'm like, what a great, incredible, just character thing that, you know, that he probably came up with to yeah. just create the way that this, cause it's an all new alien that no one else has ever played. So he's creating this whole new way of movement and yeah. it just this this way that he he waves his hands behind him as he walks. Uh, if you know, people who are listening to this, if you haven't noticed that, now you will notice it every time that you see him. Uh, yeah, every single time, <laughs> and it's it's just a great bit of physical physical acting. I think you know he's he's just so good. Yeah, it's he's he you know um, to just sort of cap off the the Doug Jones section of this episode look at look <laughs> like at every what, episode has to have like a Doug Jones love fest for a couple of minutes yeah yeah kind of <laughs> um of course the prosthetic work on his entire head is amazing but then when you look of like oh it's his hands too and then you look it's the boots as well yeah. not to, not to mention a very snug uniform yeah he's having to he's having to keep that entire physical performance up the entire time mm-hmm. while also occasionally spouting off paragraphs of techno babble like yeah that's the techno babble alone sways a lot of like good actors 
But for yeah. Doug Jones to come in and stick the landing on every single part of that and and being able to emote through the prosthetics. Like, yeah, holy crap. It's so, so good. Anyways, so um, and that's all for Doug Jones. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, going back to the, the the journeys of discovery, you can point to any member of the crew and, you know, over the course of handful of episodes you can kind of figure out what they are discovering or rediscovering or maybe it's a redefinition of something like that but it you know by the by the end of this you're just kind of like oh it's all of them like they're all on this journey of discovery i I think an early criticism was that there were so many people on this ship that it was kind of hard to keep like uh, who's the pilot what's the pilot's name again the the comms officer who is that like trust me just hang on like i mean think about think about it from a story perspective these ships are massive like tng we got to know a grand total of what 10 people on a ship that care that carried well over a thousand um you know so i mean it's just give it time. They are they are doing something different with these shows that is taking Trek into the next, for lack of a better term, the next generation. Uh, you know, making it making it new and fresh while at the same time remaining Trek. So, anyways, yeah. Um, before well, we well, go, going to what you were saying there, then so, so yeah. you've got like the um, the I think her name's Owo, who I think is the Wosakun, yeah. Is, is she a pilot? I, uh, she is the she is the comms officer. She's sitting she's next the to comms officer. Yeah, Detmer's the pilot, and Owosakun's next to her. And then you've got uh, the android, whose Arium. name I can't remember. Who? And then you've got the um, Reese. Is that his name? There's the, Reese, the, and the, there's there's Reese, Reese the and the Bryce. I think Reese is. The, this is, is the Asian guy. The Asian guy, and Bryce is the African American guy. I might so, know that. So. Um, <laughs> Are they? I because one thing I have noticed is that these aren't like typical red shirts where they just have different people sitting, you know, in in that they're clearly casting these roles for this. Are some of them going to have more to do than just sit on the? I mean, obviously the 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 android they're already hinting that there's something going on there. Which I, I remember yeah. texting you and Gary when I was watching season one, going, "This character looks way too cool for them to put this much work into it for her to just." literally all of season one all she has is like reaction shots like they'll just cut to her reacting like looking and i'm like why are they why are this poor (laughs) actress is sitting through four hours of makeup a day so that they can get her looking to the left or looking to the right so so now at least in the last like two episodes they're hinting that something weird is going on with her like she's been i don't know if there's a computer virus in her or there's something along those lines kind of it seems like but she plays uh, she she plays an integral role i'll say well i imagine so yeah i mean (laughs) from what they're what they're going they seem to be hinting at so uh i so i was curious if some of the other characters were going to eventually have their roles expanded a little bit Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Especially, you know, going back to Culber for a minute, you know, he's endured, uh, like you said, an incredible trauma and, you know, Mm -hmm. feeling alienated in his own body. I'm really excited for you to see his track in in season three and four, because he he makes a turn, makes a discovery about himself and then moves forward. And it's it's kind of like. Oh yeah, of course he's going to do this. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. that totally makes sense. <laughs> cool, very cool. 
Um, do you have any other thoughts about this episode? Um, and your, I mean, you had watched a little bit of discovery before, but this is kind of like your first real deep dive, like into oh, yeah. discovery. Any, any other thoughts before we get to uh, the stat section? Well, one thing that I have noticed about uh, discovery in general, this time mm -hmm. I was thinking about this when I was watching it yesterday that, or yeah, I think it was yesterday when I was watching that episode, uh, that I don't remember Star Trek doing as much in my memory is, is that this is, there are some really like hard sci-fi concepts here mm. uh, more so than, I mean, Star Trek's dealt with time travel and things like that in the past. Obviously we know that ever since, I mean, going back to the original series, but this is the first time, like they're, they're doing some real hard sci-fi stuff, like with, with the, the time, the wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff that, that's going on here. Yeah. Like the episode <laughs> previous to this, where, uh, they're out. It's uh, Pike and and Tyler in the in the shuttle outside of the time whirlpool kind of thing, and yep. things like glitch and like repeat each other, and and then they have the that probe come from like the future, and it's got all of a sudden got tentacles on it, like it's one of the squids from the Matrix, you know, yeah. latching on to the <laughs> yeah, ship. and and they're they're playing with all these ideas of time and things like that in a way that. I've never, I, I've never seen much sci-fi do in general, but especially not Star Trek. Star Trek, yeah. the, in the past, the time travel -y stuff has been more gimmicky, almost. Mm. But now they're like they're getting like really, like really complex sci-fi concepts for a show that's made for like you know mass audiences. Uh, yeah, and without it being like super confusing. I mean, it's a little confusing, but it's not confusing to the point where like I'm lost. You know? Yeah, uh, they they they're good about. They are good about having the the techno babble actually have some legitimacy to it. It's not a secret that when you retire from NASA, there's a good chance you'll wind up in the writer's room of Star Trek. Like that, right. <laughs> that, that that's been going on for a long, long time. Um, but they're also good about like they have like writers in there. So once they know the scientific reasoning behind this theoretical thing that they're putting in the script you've got your other writers who go oh it's like trying to catch a grain of sand with tweezers you know and yeah. they're like yes yeah. which is a um, great metaphor right right yeah. so the one thing that i will say to anybody who uh is put off by techno babble there's got to be some um, why you're listening to this show i don't know but if you <laughs> if you are and maybe star trek's not for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i will i will say this uh in relating a little a small story from my own life i used to work security at a college down in florida in uh brevard county brevard county is also home to Cape Canaveral. So at any, you know, if you know the schedule, you can just walk outside and yep, there goes the shuttle. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, I worked at a college and one I worked on the, uh, I worked at the late shift. So a lot of the, you know, teachers were going home, wrapping things up by the time I was there. And um, a teacher asked for an escort out to their vehicle. I think they were having some physical trouble or whatever, but they needed an escort to their vehicle. So I walked them out and uh, turned out it was the physics professor. Hmm. And I said, uh, you know, we got into a little discussion and I was like, yeah, I'm from South Carolina. I used to do law enforcement. And yeah, you know, my wife and I moved here, yada, yada, yada. He goes, oh, that's cool. I, you know, I used to work at NASA. I was, really? He goes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, we're in Florida. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, it's right there. Yeah. So um, I asked him 
I forget my specific question, but it was along the lines of black holes, time travel, faster than light travel, that sort of thing. I don't remember his word, his response verbatim, but I remember how it made me feel. It was like hearing someone recite poetry. And that's as close as I can get to like the folks that understand this stuff on a level of being able to potentially manufacture it, manufacture it into reality. The only way that they know how to convey this stuff is through a language that ends up coming across as artistic and poetic. Um, So when you look, when I've started having to kind of force myself into that mind frame of, you know, they call it techno babble. Take it as a techno verse. Listen, listen to the poetry of these words and let it kind of wash over you that way. And I, I think, you know, for uh, speaking for myself, I think I ended up getting a little bit more out of it because it's not, you know, in the 1960s, the they were still using, I mean, like push buttons. <laughs> like yeah. they still had screens that had tubes attached to them. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're in a, you know, now we're in an era of Trek where everything's flat screened or hologrammed. Or, Holograms, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. So they are taking those steps forward. So when they do, the techno, the techno verse, the techno babble is going to follow suit. So get ready like <laughs> it's well <coming. laughs> my, my whole thought on stuff like that is like when they're when they're spouting off like techno babble honestly you don't have to understand what they're saying because it's right. honestly it's gobbledygook anyway uh yeah. you know like it, it none of it is it doesn't mean anything in fact when they try to use words that have a that, that are more recognizable or terms that are more recognizable it comes across as less believable because you have more of a um context for for certain words you know yeah so if if it sounds more outrageous it actually works better and i've gotten to this point this is something that's happened along with me watching more watching movies so i've gotten to this point you know watching movies where i've come to enjoy the vibe of certain Mm. movies Mm. Uh, i was talking to this about to someone about uh christopher nolan's tenet the other day right yeah christopher nolan's tenet is a if you tried to explain that movie to someone you are going to fail you're going to fail and trying to explain that plot. But sometimes the plot doesn't matter if the vibes are right. And mm. I think that what, what Nolan does like with that movie is he's, he's, he's still, you still, you don't might not know every exact thing. Like why, why does this person need to go from here to here? Like, what's the point? It doesn't matter. It's about the journey getting there. So I feel that way sometimes about something like dial the dialogue that you're talking about, where it's more like, it doesn't matter if I understand what they're saying, as long as I know what they're trying to convey, yeah. you know, as long as I know what, what this means to the overall show, I don't mm-hmm. need to know the exact science because I'm not a scientist. I don't, if you, if you said it in technical terms that were scientifically correct, I'm not going to know. And 99.9% of the people watching the show are not going to know unless you get <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson on the phone and he starts <laughs> poking holes and everything, you know, as he right, comes right. to Otherwise, nobody's <laughs> going to know and it doesn't matter. So just like go with it. Just go yeah. with it. You know? Yeah, I think. And, you know, thinking about it a little bit deeper, um, you know, you mentioned something uh, earlier about 
about certain uh, shows that went off the rails. But, you know, you and I have talked multiple times, uh, probably on this show, certainly on Cinema Shock, about the balance of certain elements in narratives where you have the plot, the story, the characters that most people tend to agree. Those are the three things you kind of have to have to have a solid narrative. The balance can be a little wonky, but you need to have all, all those three things in place. So I, I think for something like that, like tenant where the plot isn't necessary. Okay. So maybe the store that, so you bring the plot down, but you bring the story and the characters a little bit higher to balance it out. Does that well, to seem me, like that holds water? Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. To me, the plot is something you're going to appreciate. If, if a movie has a complex plot, you're going to most appreciate it the first time that you watch it. Mm. Right. The story is what keeps you coming back. Yeah. Right. The the, the yeah. journey that the characters are on. That's what keeps you coming back. Not the individual plot elements, you know, I know there might be individual set pieces or something like I think of, you know, a, a favorite of mine that I watched recently, the first Mission Impossible movie, just because I wanted to reference two Brian De Palma movies on this episode. Uh, <laughs> like the, there are sequences in that movie that. I can't get out of my head. I mean, obviously, the the when they go to Langley and the dangling from the ceiling, everyone knows that scene. But if somebody tried to explain every single element of the plot, like from point A to point B to point C of Mission Impossible, a lot of people are going to have a very hard time because it is very yeah. complex. It's but very. you still, by the end of the movie, you know where that the character's journeys are. You know mm. where the story has taken you. The plot points don't matter. You know, right. they really don't. I mean, they do to an extent, but in the long mm -hmm. term, as long as you get to the destination, that's what matters. That's what people care about. And like something like this show that we're talking about here, most of the things that we have talked about are more character related in their journeys than the actual specific plot points of what's going on in this episode. It's yeah. about Spock's journey. It's about Michael's journey. It's about you every one of these characters like you said they're on a journey of discovery and that's what keeps you coming back episode to episode not necessarily the plot points the plot points are intriguing i'm wondering what what the hell the red angel is and stuff but that's really an uh that's really just a tool to bring the characters along on a journey yeah. uh, and that's that's the that's their end goal is to find out what that is so obviously you want to know but it's really about the, the the show is really about their experience along that that journey, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before we move on, Todd, I have one question for you. And you may or may not know the answer to this. Okay. Uh, because I was I was wondering about this because this episode referenced the cage, uh huh, and referenced the original series. Mm -hmm. What are we like two? We're like two seasons into Strange New Worlds now, right? There are two uh, seasons. Out. Yes, or uh, season two is season airing right now, right? Season two just finished. Of, just ended. Of, okay. Yeah. So eventually, eventually Strange New Worlds in that timeline is going to have to get to the menagerie. <laughs> and they're gonna yep. have to they're gonna have to do something where either they're going to have to change history or that series is going to somehow end with Christopher with Captain Pike in that boop boop machine that he wears <laughs> in the menagerie machine yeah <laughs> uh do you think they're gonna address that eventually um the answer to that question i don't have to think about the answer is yes they will yeah. be addressing it and they, and to be honest uh they're from where you are in discovery they're going to be addressing it very soon 
Oh, really? So, so it's something that's addressed like during the course of the show. Okay, oh, yeah. good to know. All right, good. <laughs> it's, I was just thinking about that today. I was like, man, Pike did show back up in the original series, but he was real messed up. Like, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I, re- I remember that being kind of traumatizing when I was a kid seeing that. J- just wait, because when they address it here, get get ready to be re-traumatized. Like, oh, good. Excellent. <laughs> it, it's kind of, it's, it's unnerving. It's unnerving. Okay. And you're just kind of like, cool. Oh boy. Oh wow. I like that this show is yeah. not afraid to go unnerving now and then. Like I was talking yeah. to you about that episode with the where they show the Baul coming out of the black ooze and that that's like that is horror movie stuff. Like that was oh, terrifying. Yeah. Uh I mean <laughs> what a great visual. Something I never expected to see in Star Trek. If if you if you want an interesting, maybe I won't say a rabbit hole, but maybe a rabbit divot uh to fall down on in IMDB or Wikipedia. Look up the actor who played the Baal character. And oh yeah, it's it's all the, he's been involved in all the projects Doug Jones didn't have time for. <laughs> oh, like, do you know his name by any chance? I we covered it when we talked about him on the episode. His name is it Javier Botet by by chance? It is. Yes, it is. Because I only he only came to mind to me just now because I know that he does very physical work like. Doug Jones does, but literally this morning I was reading an interview with him uh, because oh, wow. he is in uh, the Last Voyage of the Demeter, the the Dracula movie that's out in theaters right now. He plays Dracula. Yeah. Oh, that. cool! Yeah, nice. yeah. So he, yeah, and I he's saw also that he was in, involved. Yeah, so he's also in um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. He's in Mama. He plays Mama in the movie Mama, which was Guillermo del Toro produced. Oh, um, yeah. So he's in a lot of stuff. He he's really interesting. He's uh got a he's got a disease um called uh, uh Marfan syndrome mm-hmm. that uh it's so funny that you you mentioned that because I had no idea that he played that character in this. I just thought I was just trying to think of someone else with that kind of physicality. Uh but he's got this uh genetic super rare genetic condition called Marfan syndrome that uh you're typically very thin and you have very uh, hypermobile joints and disproportionately long arms and fingers. Like if you go look at a picture of him out of costume and even like I, I saw one today where he like had his hands in his pockets and what his thumbs were sticking out, his thumbs are like four inches long. Like it's, he's, it's, <laughs> but he, he's this guy who embraced that weird physicality when he was young and decided yeah. that and even though he was kind of an outcast when he was younger, he saw himself as like very unique and knew that he could do something with his body and he's made a career out of it. It's really cool. Yeah. We, we, uh, you know, I skimmed the surface of his, uh, of his CV when we talked about him on the show, but what a fascinating guy. Like, and I even, I even found his height and weight and compared him to, and I was like, just, just to give you a more accurate picture, he's taller and lighter than Doug than Jones. Jones and it's like yeah. and and Doug Jones is a his his proportions very are thin. unique very thin. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 but that's um, funny because he does actually have some you you mentioned the the he's he does the stuff that Doug Jones didn't have time for but they both have that Guillermo del Toro connection exactly. because you know because <laughs> del Toro did Mama uh I, I, Doug Jones is in every, most of del Toro's movies in fact I think Javier Botet is in Crimson Peak he plays the red I, woman yeah, I think ghost. I saw I, that he was. I think that was. I'm pretty his, sure that's. I'm pretty sure that's him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. What a what a fascinating career, and just I, I love the fact that 
um, Star Trek has and conti- has continued to embrace unique beings. You know, yeah. whether it's um, wherever you land on the spectrum in terms of either physicality or um, orientation or, or or anything, uh, you have a place in Starfleet, and that's that's really that kind of warms the center of your heart of just kind of yeah. like, oh yeah, I belong there too. <laughs> it's really great. So yeah. one more one more thing I want to talk to you about, Justin, uh, before we get into the stats section. Uh, and, you know, uh, getting a little more personal here, you and I are both um, one of three brothers. You you have two other brothers. I have mm-hmm. two other brothers. I'm the youngest. You're the oldest, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep, correct. Um, we see Burnham and Spock have a very unique relationship in terms of the things that they are doing and in terms of their past now you being the older brother are going to have a very unique perspective on your younger siblings whereas i as the youngest sibling see and and i think you're closer to your brothers in age than mine are mine are very much older than me well me and matt are three years apart but but me and preston are almost 13 years apart he's almost 13 years younger than me oh okay a bit younger than me I was going to ask because I didn't remember the specific uh, age gaps. I'm my next oldest brother, the middle Davis brother is uh, my brother, Chris, who is 13 years older than me. But my oldest brother is Jim, who is 20 years older than me. Um, So that offers us some unique perspectives in terms of sibling interaction. And I wondered if watching burnham and spock if that made you think of any types of uh interactions that you've had with with your brothers um growing up or you know as kids or maybe more recent as today did did their interaction bring about any memories for you bring any memories to the surface well i never had to like I never was in a situation where I needed to uh, insult my brother to the point where he ran away like a uh I felt like that uh the scene in that it was like you know you know when you see a movie and they're trying to get rid of a dog and they're like the dog won't yeah, go no. away and they're just like get out of here I hate you I don't love you and yeah. then to try to get the dog to run that's what <laughs> she was doing to Spock essentially yeah. <laughs> except she was the one running away but it's the same thing uh, I've never had to do that with my brothers <laughs> so, uh, no I mean their no their relationship is is highly different I would say than any any relationship that I have with my brothers I mean um their their relationship is incredibly complex uh for a variety of reasons for one they you know they are obviously two different species or at least half he's half human right Uh, right but but acts but acts more vulcan i love how complex spock has become as a character by the way oh yeah Uh, not just in this but over the course of you know the last 60 years or whatever yeah (laughs) uh yeah I, i wouldn't say that anything comes to mind no yeah i you know watching them it was kind of interesting for me to kind of think back to uh you know by the time i was old enough to start hanging around with my with the middle brother chris um his you know his four-year-old little brother was hanging around and chris was watching david letterman and saturday night live and the kids in the hall and that definitely influenced me uh in terms of my uh appreciation of comedy 
And being raised essentially in a house of adults, I've always felt like I kind of relate more to folks who are older than me. Like when I was working in law enforcement, the people I was closest to were well over a decade older than me. Um, You know, and, you know, as I got older, because I was the younger brother, I felt like there was some, a bit of a, my brother, Chris was certainly my advocate (laughs) to, (laughs) to mom and dad every now and then, but because my brother Jim was so much older. And like I said, by the time I was old enough to realize what was going on, he had already moved out of the house. So I was very close uh, with my brother, Chris, whereas my relationship with Jim has always been more distant. And I mean, we've grown, we've grown closer over the years, but, you know, looking at, looking at the idea of the family you choose and uh, you and I have gotten together uh, with our circle of friends uh, every year uh, around Thanksgiving uh, to, for our friends, Thanksgiving. Uh, what we call what we call thanks Gary and you know Gary Horn was on the episode last week the long, so the long story behind that name <laughs> yeah there's a long story behind the name we'll we'll save that for, we'll save that for Patreon uh, <laughs> but um, I, you know looking at that stuff I feel like the bonds between the quote unquote the family you choose uh, ends up being str- thicker than blood you know what I'm saying like and there and there's and there's even times where and, and I mean, that's in the positive light, but I always also feel like when there is strife, like the strife is more passionate about this thing because, because you care about this issue, but you also care about this person so much. And I wonder, you know, any thoughts to that in terms of how Spock and Burnham have connected and will continue to connect at least for the rest of this season. Um, any, any thoughts to that before we move on? I think it's kind of hard to say for me not knowing where it's going to go because I mean that that scene where she is trying to push him away, mm-hmm. uh, calling him a half breed freak, I think is what she calls him and stuff like yeah. that. That's very cutting, and it's like, well, I could kind of see why he's mad at you. I do think it's a little more like I don't know why that is a lifelong trauma for him because he also admits that he clear he knows that what she was trying to do so it's like well why are you still mad about it uh yeah. you know but but uh so, emotions but to, emotions run deep in vulcans justin <laughs> yeah well i guess so i guess it's, it's hard for me to say um really it's hard for me to give a full thought on that because i don't know where it's going yet you know because mm-hmm. i don't have the foresight of knowing but uh, i mean it was definitely like a defining experience for him clearly. So I'm, I am curious as to how their relationship will move forward after that. But I, I do, I did love the way that that scene played out, especially the way that they cut between the child actors and the adult actors. It was yeah. very well done because it played around with the idea of memory, which, you know, plays into the title of this episode, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this episode is about memory uh, you know, Pike's memory of going to Talos four and, and, you know, and all, there's a, there's a lot going on there. Uh, so thematically, I think it works really, really, really well in that point, but I, I just have a hard time assessing it because I don't know what to expect from here on. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, I do. Wild. I hope that they hope that they, they make nice and uh, give each other a big hug is what I hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I, I think there's without giving too much away, uh, there is some catharsis there at the end. There's, there's uh you do get a sense of closure 
Um, and but I mean, we know that this is this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of Spock's journey. We've got so yeah. much more of him to come. You know, not only in Strange New Worlds, but then moving into the original series and even TNG and on down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is this has been really great. And you, you mentioned briefly the the editing back and forth. I love the fact that they are treating this more like a film in that yeah. the camera moves. The editing is such that you jump back and forth between perspectives and the the cutting back and forth between the child actors versus the adult actors really created a sense that it was all one thing happening at one time. And it was really beautifully done, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So folks, uh, you know, we've been, we've been talking for a while now, and of course we've been uh, showering a lot of people with praise, uh, you know, from the actors and uh, the, and the characters uh, mostly that's been mostly our focus, but uh, you know, they're they're not the only people involved in this whole shindig. There's a lot of people going on, uh, you know, doing things in front of and behind the camera. And so as we do every week, lovingly, we ask the question, who do we blame? Uh, this story was written by Dan. And I think I'm I think the D in his last name is silent. So I'm going to I'm going to tr- I'm, I'm going to go with this pronunciation and say it's Dan Workin. Um, and his writing partner, Jay Beatty, um, have been writing partners for years and years. Uh, working his first credit was as a writer on Dragnet in 2003 and 2004. I was not aware of the newer Dragnet series. Did you happen to catch any of that? No, I remember there being a no, the way I was about to say, I remember there being a newer movie. Yeah, there was a newer movie, right? With uh, no, that was Get Smart. I get those two mixed up. Uh, okay. Steve with Steve Carell and Anne Hathaway. No, uh, yeah. there was a Dragnet. There was a Dragnet movie back in like the eighties with uh, Tom Hanks and, and uh, Tom Dan Hanks. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but no, I do not remember great. a newer. Yeah, it's a great movie. I don't remember a newer TV show. Um, yeah, Ed O'Neill and Ethan Embry. Yeah, yeah, that was Ed O'Neill is Joe Friday <laughs> because why wouldn't he be? Of course, but, no, that's, that's good casting. Yeah, Ethan Embry as his as his partner. It looks like I I I think it only ran one season, um, twenty some episodes, and that was it. But I think Eva Longoria's in it. There's a couple of other familiar faces in there. I'll have to check it out sometime. Uh, But yeah, working worked on a few other things. uh, Eight episodes of Criminal Minds, uh, and then he and his uh, writing partner Jay Beatty developed. The Matador for Robert Rodriguez's El Rey Network back in 2014. Huh. Yeah. And then uh, they also developed MTV's Scream series. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The, but cool. this is his only work in the franchise so far. So uh, not surprisingly, Beatty's uh, resume is very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his first credit was as an office production assistant on an indie film uh, you may have heard of called Pulp Fiction back in 1994. <laughs> no, not familiar with it. You're, are you not familiar with that? It's by this guy, <laughs> uh, 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 Quentin Tarantano. Uh, he's 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 made a few things. I think I, that kid's got some chops. I think he's going places. That's cool. Um, so he was he was a production assistant, so he probably yeah. didn't get paid. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, he was probably he was Working probably for the a experience. Yeah, 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 getting some coffee, picking up coffee, like picking up picking up lunch from the deli down the street. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, Pulp Fiction uh has a few Star Trek alum in it. Amanda Plummer, who plays uh 
oh i forgot her name in in pulp fiction uh baby uh, she's uh, she's um uh honey honey bunny uh, honey bunny honey bunny, honey bunny. that's bunny. right yeah. yeah and uh phil lamar is also well, a star trek who plays alum. marvin of course plays marvin <laughs> yes yeah. uh in fact, I, that's one of the things I'm really excited for you uh, when you watch Picard eventually is when you get is to Phil Lamar's on there. Well, uh, where, what's Phil? Where's Phil Lamar in Star Trek? Phil Lamar, uh, he, he's done a lot of voice work, so it's not surprising he's in lower. Yeah, decks. I was about to say because um, he, I was about to say because he does a lot of voice work these days. I yeah. mean, he's in. If, if look at if you look at Phil Lamar's. I mean, I first knew him from. Mad, Mad TV. TV, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> <Mad TV. laughs> uh, I probably I probably saw him on Mad TV before I ever saw Pulp Fiction. Uh, okay, yeah, and because yeah. Mad TV debuted in like ninety five, ninety six, and Pulp Fiction I probably didn't see until like ninety eight, ninety nine when I was okay. in my later years of high school. I uh, definitely didn't. My parents didn't take me to see Pulp Fiction when I was thirteen years old in the movie theater. Believe it or not. Uh, well, then what were <laughs> what were they even doing, Justin? <laughs> nineteen ninety four. They did take me to watch True Lies in nineteen ninety four. So it wasn't. <laughs> but that's they because it had they Arnold. Didn't completely it. fall down. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he. I mean, look at his IMDb. Dude's got a lot of. He's he's done a ridiculous amount of voice work. It is extensive. Yeah, he plays he plays an admiral in lower okay. decks we, we don't see gotcha. a lot of him but i mean the admiral is like the really notable character but i think he's done a couple of side characters as well like you said he's got a extensive voiceover resume right, but Am right. but amanda's amanda Plummer's character in picard will just melt your brain she's okay she's, i love her she's anyways, awesome so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so bd two years later uh he went from an office pa to a set pa on another <laughs> uh, on film yeah <laughs> from dusk till dawn he was working uh there alongside okay. robert rodriguez so there's that robert rodriguez and tarantino yeah. and tarantino yeah um so uh from dusk till dawn has some star trek alum in it as well fred williamson and mark lawrence um mark where lawrence... was wait fred williamson is in star trek yeah <laughs> does he he did he play a klingon of... He did an episode of the original series. I don't recall the original the series. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I huh. think Mark Lawrence was in Deep Space Nine, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then uh Beatty's first TV writing credit was season four, episode seven, the prison of the show The New Adventures of Robin Hood. Now, I found a little interesting tidbit here. Uh, that particular episode stars John Bradley as Robin Hood. However, the series began with a different actor in the title role, Matthew Peretta, who you might not recognize the name right offhand, but in Mel Brooks's Robin Hood Men in Tights. He played Will Scarlet. Hey, Scarlet's my middle name. My full name is Will Scarlet O'Hara. We're from Georgia. Will Scarlet O'Hara, what a great name. Yeah, <laughs> there's no Star Trek connection, but I just, I, well, first of all, I love Robin Hood, but like, I just thought that that was really funny that he got to play uh, Will Scarlet. And two different, and yeah. then Robin Hood, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but funny. yeah, after this, Beatty's career uh, looks very similar, almost identical. They um, became a writing team, yeah. Yeah, uh, this, uh, this is also his only work on the franchise so far. I mean... They write a good episode, and if you look at their oh, yeah. resumes, they've got plenty of writing credits. I hope they end up coming back for, for something else, because it seems like they have a good grasp of this particular series and the importance of 
the series, the franchise history that's involved. Uh, but this episode was directed by TJ Scott. Now we've seen his name before. The last uh, episode he directed was season one, episode 11, The Wolf Inside, which we discussed mm -hmm. with Trek trivia master Davey Willett from the Trexperts quiz, uh, that podcast on episode 97, which uh, I'll go ahead and let slip here. You might see Mr. Todd A. Davis appear again on Trexperts quiz. I've been called out by another trek podcaster uh -oh. <laughs> uh, yeah the, the gauntlet has been thrown so i am picking it up and going back on that show uh we always have fun and, and that is the it's the trek trivia show that will melt any trek any trekkers brain like the stuff the first episode of theirs i listened to they pulled all of their questions from the enterprise technical manuals and i was, Jesus. I was like <laughs> you gotta be kidding me wow <laughs> Um, but yeah, after, after this, uh, so this is TJ Scott's last directing in the franchise so far. I hope he comes back. He's got some great cre credits, uh, to his name, but after Trek, he did season one, episode 13 of doom patrol. He did two episodes of V wars, 18 episodes of departure. And currently to date, he has done four episodes of Hudson and Rex. So guy's still working. He's still cranking uh. it out. Um, in terms of guest stars, we've got a lot of familiar faces, a uh, bunch of folks returning. Of course, Michelle Yeoh as Giorgio, Ethan Peck as Spock, Alan Van Sprang as Leland. How great is Alan Van Sprang as Leland? Oh, he's yeah. Such, he's really good. He makes it, it's his performance. Love to hate a, him. <laughs> yeah. You love to hate him when he's good. He's you're like, OK, I can see getting behind yeah. this guy. And then when he's bad, you're just like, oh, let's burn this mother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we got Rachel and Cheryl as non. But the person that I would like to focus on for this episode today is Melissa George as V. Yeah, I can't yeah, believe that we haven't talked great. about Melissa George yet because I am a huge fan of Melissa George, and I have been for many, many years. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, probably probably dating back to Mulholland Drive, but mm. really, I pr I probably became a big fan of hers. I mean, the first things I saw her in probably probably Dark City, yeah, uh, Dark City and the Limey. Uh, but the thing that I really became a like fan of hers on was on Alias, uh, J.J. Uh, Abrams' Alias. She had a recurring role in the last couple of seasons, a very important big role uh, on the series. And I just have loved her ever since. She's great. Yeah, she's got a, such a unique look that is that lends well to like a femme fatale, but also mm -hmm. towards like a soccer mom, but also like the girl in the horror movie running up the stairs. Like oh, yeah. you can, she fits into so many different. And she's done roles. a lot of genre she's work, so a lot of, a lot of horror movies and, and yeah. uh, genre stuff like that. Uh, I think that she seems to really enjoy it. I think the biggest one she's done is probably, I mean, the Amityville horror with uh, Ryan Reynolds, which is not great, uh, but I do, but that's a big role for her. I mean, Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like her a lot. I think she's really great. Yeah, so we, we've hit on a lot of stuff in her resume, but uh, yeah, born in Perth in Western Australia. She was actually a champion, if I saw this correctly, a champion roller skater. Oh, wow. interesting, interesting thing to have on your resume. Uh, but her first credit was on a show called Home and Away, where she did... 500 episodes i think oh it had to be a soap opera then yeah i think it's an <laughs> australian soap opera yeah, yeah it's gotta be 500 <laughs> then, episodes yeah yeah her first film credit not long after that 
Dark City. She plays May, uh, which is yeah, directed, which is directed by Alex Proyas uh, and written by Proyas with Lem Dobbs, who did Romancing the Stone and the score. I love the score. Um, I think he also did the Limey. I think so. Yeah, I think I yeah. think because Lem Dobbs has done several Soderbergh movies, and I I'm pretty sure he wrote the Limey. Oh yeah, he's he's got an ex- I just put two films here. He, he's got an extensive resume. Look him up, folks. Uh and uh Dark City also written by David Goyer, which if you've seen a comic book movie in the last 25 years, there's a good chance you've seen something written by David Goyer. Um Well, also if to- you want to talk about comic book franchises, well, oh, yeah. go ahead. Well, you're going to say you're going to David Goyer what like Well, you know, it goes back to The Crow 2. He did the Nick Fury TV movie. He did mm-hmm. all three Blade movies. He did all three of the Dark Knight, uh, the Dark Knight movies, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, like, and that's to name a few. There's a bunch more. <laughs> right. I mean, and if you want to do a you know, talk comic book references, Alex Proyas directed The Crow. Yep. The first yep. one. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so not long after uh not long after Dark City, in fact, the next year was the Limey. Uh, two years after that was Sugar and Spice. Same year was Mulholland Drive. Uh, she did two episodes of Friends, which I'm obligated to mention her appearance on Friends. Otherwise, my executive producer will pull the plug. Um, <laughs> then she did uh, 23 episodes of Alias. Uh, quite a quite an extensive stint there playing Lauren Reed. Uh, like I said, for 23 episodes from 2003 to 2005, she appeared in the 2005 remake of Amityville Horror alongside Ryan Reynolds. And she was in 30, 30 Days of Night, another comic book movie mm-hmm. reference there. Uh, that was in 2007. She did uh, eight episodes of Grey's Anatomy. Again, I'm obligated to mention that or my executive producer <laughs> will hang me. Um, but yeah, she was. Here's another interesting thing. She was in the Australian and American versions of the show the slap which was um for us it was 2015 the american version but the uh, the australian version was in 2011 i I thought that was really interesting because i think she might be one of the only people that did both um well you know who else is in that in the american version yeah zachary quinto zachary quinto yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i was like look if you're used to seeing him as Spock, brace yourself for the trailer for the slap because you yeah. see Zachary Quinto slap a kid. <laughs> like it's, <Yep. laughs> it's a little jarring. <laughs> yeah. I don't know um, if I ever saw that. I remember it coming out. I think it was on HBO or something, wasn't it? Uh, I, but I, it I don't think NBC I ever watched thing. it. It Oh, was it? It might've been. I don't know. For some I reason, I was thinking it was, was a premium ser- premium. Oh, it, yeah. I just looked it up. It is. It is NBC. You're right. Is it? Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, this is her only appearance in the franchise so far, which is kind of, I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. Susan Oliver as Vina in the cage, an iconic performance, like, mm-hmm. and, and from a wonderful actor uh, who ended up becoming a wonderful director and sounded like a wonderful person. Um, but for, for another appearance here, uh, you know, all these years later, uh, Melissa George does a hell of a job. She really knocks yeah, it out great. of the park. Um, recently she has done 17 episodes of the mosquito coast on Apple TV. Oh. So uh, she's, she's still cranking it out. That's with her, uh, Mulholland drive, uh, co-star Justin Thoreau in it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah he's in yeah. there, right? I, it looks really good. I haven't seen it, but it looks good. 
yeah i hadn't pulled the trigger on that uh myself yet but yeah it's i told you how bad i am at watching tv shows so <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> uh, a couple of interesting little tidbits here uh burnham and spock have a little interesting exchange there uh at the end uh on leland's ship where burnham says say goodbye spock and spock looks at leland and says goodbye spock um <laughs> this is actually a reference to a joke um famously but incorrectly attributed to george burns and gracie allen um huh. from from the george and gracie show where yeah. it was say good night gracie good night gracie but she never actually said good night gracie the reference is actually from a routine from dick rowan and dick mart excuse me dan rowan and dick martin on their show the laugh-in uh with them exchanging the lines at the end of the episode say good night dick good night dick and that's <laughs> the actual uh that's the actual genesis of that little comedic bit that was spun nice. for this episode yeah um and we've talked about all the wonderful uh technical things going on in this episode in terms of uh cinematography and editing this episode actually won star trek discovery its first primetime emmy for outstanding prosthetic makeup and when you look at the folks that are on the bridge and even the oh, Telosians, yeah. you know, you can, mm -hmm. if you look close, hell, they did it in the original series where like there's veins under that skin mm -hmm. and you can see yeah. it pulsing. Like that's impressive. Um, So it's, it's no small feat and it's not a surprise that they would win something for uh, outstanding prosthetic makeup here. So Justin, let me ask you this question, which we ask every week of our guests. Is this essential viewing? If someone is sitting down and working their way through Star Trek for the very first time and they come to this episode, is this a must-see episode or is this one that they can skip? Well, I think that because of the structure of, of Discovery, really all of them are essential if you want to know what's going on. But yeah. yes, I would say this is absolutely essential. This feels like a big episode. Like this feels like this is uh, introducing some big ideas that are you're going to need to know what's going on in order to enjoy this show in the future. Yeah, I, I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, you know, I've I've said it multiple times, you know, because of the nature of the structure of uh, Discovery with it being truly serialized, it really is hard to, to skip any episode and continue with any sort of cohesive understanding of the plot. In fact, I think in two, in two seasons, I think we've had a grand total of one bottle episode, which... Yeah understanding that the seasons are shorter than the network type stuff that came before they're telling they're telling a tighter story so that right. doesn't really leave a lot of room for bottle episodes but yeah, i think yeah. the bottle episode type thing is something that we got with short treks which yeah i loved short treks i wish I they would bring more that back yeah. oh they're they're amazing um well justin thank you thank you thank you so much for a sitting down and plowing through <laughs> almost two seasons of discovery to come on this show and talk about it. Um, but also thank you for carving out the time to, to sit down and record with me and, and course, answer yeah. some weird questions. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any parting thoughts about this episode, about uh, discovery as a whole, about the franchise as a whole? Um, any parting thoughts before we go? Well, I mean, I just, you know, I'm hooked at this point, so I'm I'm really into it. This is, I've been meaning to watch this series for a while now, so thank you for like lighting the fire under my ass so that I could uh, finally have a, you know, be forced to to watch it. 
uh, but I but I'm loving I'm loving it. So uh, so I, I really do appreciate that. Um, and I will I will come back for um, Strange New Worlds. I'll get you on the that? schedule, man. Because <laughs> that season one comes after right after season two of this, right? Yeah. Because season okay, so yeah, so that's coming up. I pretty think soon. it's like yeah. I think between the end of season two and the start of Strange New Worlds is maybe like I think there's like a six month gap of just okay, you know, the the dust settling as it were. Yeah, yeah. And then Strange New Worlds picks back up, but yeah, cool, yeah. excellent, awesome. Well, folks, you know her, I love her, and from what I understand, you listeners love her too. Next week, we will be joined by Computer Resume Podcast's executive producer, Kat Davis, to discuss Discovery Season 2, Episode 9, Project Daedalus, which is available wherever you watch Star Trek. We support the strike. Justin, where can be... I, I understand you have a podcast of some sort that <laughs> you're doing. A, I have a podcast <laughs> I do with a couple of friends of mine. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, most of you know. Wasn't Gary just on like an episode, like a one or two before me, right? Yeah, so he, he was on Mark last. He was on last week. This. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm on a show called Cinema Shock that I host along with Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, where we uh, take a deep dive into the production stories of our favorite cult and genre films. We are currently uh working our way through the early filmography of Mr. John Waters. I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between John Waters fans and Star Trek fans. Uh, yeah. I'm sure that will appeal <laughs> to all of you. <laughs> uh but yeah, so we're working our way through that. Uh we we basically typically most of the time we will focus on a director's career or part of a director's career, take it movie by movie, deep dive into the making of that movie and then kind of give our thoughts on it. So it's a, it's a really like heavily researched show. Uh, so we, we try to be like the one place, like if you want to find out something about how a movie was made, we try to compile all that information and tell it into a, into a story. Uh, so like everything you would want to know about this movie, like, like pink flamingos we did recently, or we just recorded, uh, what was the one that we just recorded? Polyester. <laughs> polyester. Yeah. Uh, you know, if everything, if you ever wanted to know everything about the making of polyester or pink flamingos, or if you want to go back to some of our older episodes, Robocop or Starship Trooper, something that might appeal more to, you know, Star Trek fans. Yeah. Uh, you can find <laughs> all of those episodes on at cinemashock.net or, you know, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, you can uh, just search for Cinema Shock and you'll find us on there. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. Awesome. And where can people reach you directly on the internet? Oh, I am at Justin underscore Bishop and cinema shock is at cinema underscore shock on all the, you know, social medias. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the computer resume podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in 10 forward. Rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. 
feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?